Freedom Man, that's what it's all about. Welcome. You are listening to What on Earth is Happening. This show will discuss the topics of human consciousness, mind control, natural law, the occult, and all issues that affect the freedom of the people of Earth. What on Earth is Happening will endeavor to shine light upon the darkness of our world and to offer empowering solutions to the problems we face as humanity approaches its critical moment of choice. And now, here is your host, Mark Passio. Welcome one and all. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. Today is Saturday, August 31st, 2013. We have a great show lined up for you here today. I'm going to be presenting today the homework results for the Natural Law Seminar, the very first Natural Law Seminar that was hosted here in Philadelphia from June 22nd, 2013 to July 27th, 2013. And I want to let everyone know that that seminar was a huge success. Uh, The students were great. I think a lot of value was taken from the seminar by all who attended. And there will be uh, future ones planned. I don't have any information on that currently, but uh, continue to listen to this podcast and to check the What on Earth is Happening website Uh, for announcements on future natural law seminars coming up here in the city of Philadelphia and possibly in the form of online webinars. So, uh, some other quick announcements before we get into the subject matter for today. The videos for the Free Your Mind 2 conference are still actively being worked on. Uh, Chris, our great video editor, is doing a great job, and the uh, preliminary designs that he's showed me look awesome. People are really going to be happy with the results. Uh, It's a lot of videos to go through and process, so uh, please be patient. They're going to be ready in probably about another month. I don't want to make any absolute promises, but uh, within the next couple months, they will be released to the public. I spoke on natural law at the Gwynedd Friends Meeting House uh, in Gwynedd, Pennsylvania on August 4th, 2013, and that was a great presentation. Um, I really went into depth on natural law without making it uh, the length of like a a seminar, but it did run a little over four hours, that lecture, and that was videotaped. So... um, We have that being worked on by uh, video editor Tim Smith from uh, Signs of the Time Media, and he is going to uh, be uh, releasing that fairly shortly, 
Um, hopefully within the next couple of weeks, we'll see how that goes. But um, that will be coming out, and I will uh, have a link to that in my videos section as well. It'll be the first extended video on natural law that I've actually, uh, you know, uh, recorded, had recorded for the What on Earth is Happening website. So I'm really excited about that, and I think uh, that will really help a lot of people to understand natural law in uh, a, a, a bigger way with, with a lot of visuals. So look for that soon on whatonearthishappening.com. And uh, thanks also to Gary for uh, hooking up that um, lecture at the Gwented Friends Meeting House. Really appreciated. Also, thanks to Patrick Mangan for editing out the commercials on the What on Earth is Happening podcasts from Oracle Broadcasting. And uh, all the shows on Oracle that I did um, that are still on my podcast section are now commercial-free. The commercials have actually been removed uh, from those. The audio editing work was done by Patrick Mangan, so thanks so much for, for doing that work. Really appreciate it. I was uh, I did a bunch of interviews in the uh, time that I uh, have not been podcasting because <clears throat> I took off the entire uh, two months basically in June and July. Oh, not the entire two months, but the second half of June and all of July because I was working on the Natural Law Seminar course material and I wanted to dedicate 100% of my time to that endeavor. Um, so... There were no, have been no podcasts since uh, earlier on in June when I did the um, uh, podcast, the extended podcast on the presentation that I gave at the Free Your Mind 2 conference, New Age Bullshit and the Suppression of the Sacred Masculine. That video is now really kind of going, I don't want to say viral, but it's making the rounds in the alternative uh, news community and the truth community as we speak, and I think a lot of people are gaining a lot of value from that podcast as well. Uh, thanks so much to the gentleman who uh, made that into a video uh, slide presentation and posted it on YouTube. So the uh, interviews that I've done since I haven't been podcasting over the last couple months um, are all on my news section of my website, and you could check those out. Um, I was interviewed on Crystal Kids Radio with Natalie Marie on June 22nd. I was interviewed on Gnostic Warrior Radio on July 30th. I was back on Occult Science Radio with Curtis Davis on August 7th. Um, I was interviewed by Richard Grove uh, on his uh, video podcast series, History So It Doesn't Repeat, on August 18th. And I was interviewed recently on Birth of a New Earth with Janice Barcello on August 22nd. So definitely check out all of that material in the What on Earth is Happening news section. I will be speaking at the Global Breakthrough Energy Movement Conference, the Breakthrough Energy Movement Conference in Boulder, Colorado on October 10th. The conference runs for three days, October 10th, 11th, and 12th, 2013, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, so, um, thanks to Jerome for uh, hooking up um, my presentation at the Breakthrough Energy Movement Conference. Um, really excited to be part of this. It's going to be a huge event with tons of speakers. I mean, the speaker lineup is incredible. Uh, I'll just 
briefly go down the list of speakers here. Uh, Regina Meredith, Jason Verbelli, Garrett Modell, Catherine Austin Fitz, Moray King, Foster Gamble, Sterling Allen, Joel Garbon, Russell Anderson, Tom Vallone, David Niebauer, or Niebauer, Ruby Karat, James Martinez, Mitchell Rabin, Fernando Vosa, Ulf Dahlstrom, Dan Winter, Jason Matozo, Stephen Ross, Sasha Stone, Michael Tellinger, David Martin, Mark Dancy, Jamie Johnover, Daniel Nunez, Erica Nunez, myself, Mark Passio, Michael Riversong, Mike Upstone, Josh Toms, Mark Brashe, Randy Powell, Mark LeClaire, Russ Grise, James Schmidt, Mike Waters, and Richard Dolan. So this is a who's who of the alternative energy community and consciousness movement. And uh, really excited to be part of this conference coming up in Boulder. I'm speaking on Thursday evening, October 10th. And again, the conference runs from Thursday to Saturday, October 10th through 12th, 2013. Uh, you can go right to the front page of whatonearthishappening.com and click the banner on the front page for the Breakthrough Energy Movement and go to that page, read all about the conference, and there is also a place that you can order tickets right from there. So uh, do check out the, their website at globalbem.com. That's globalbem for breakthroughenergymovement.com. I will also be speaking at the Omni Hotel in New Haven, Connecticut. This is going to be taking place Saturday, October 19th, 2013. This is sponsored by Pattern Recognition Time. And thank you to um, Art and Chris Capozzi uh, for setting all of this up. And this is going to be taking place again Saturday, October to October 19th, 2013 at the Omni Hotel. That's at 155 Temple Street, New Haven, Connecticut. The doors will open at 9 a.m. Advanced ticket sales are a $20 donation uh, and that you could send a check or money order to Chris Capozzi. The uh, address is on the flyer, uh, which will be posted with this podcast. And the at-the-door tickets will only be $5 more, so it'll be $25 cash donation at the door. The topic will be natural law. It will be an all-day seminar, a one-day seminar on natural law, all day. It's going to be like, um, you know, a David Icke-style lecture where I'm going in-depth into the topic of natural law and covering uh, everything about it. And I'm condensing that material into one day of information. And uh, hopefully we'll have a nice crowd out there that really wants to delve deep into this material, understand it, and hopefully they will bring other people who need to see and hear this information. That's the key thing that we want to see happen here. We want to see people bringing other people out to it and say, hey, this is the, the why that underlies everything that's going on that you see going on in the world. Here's what we can do about it. 
This is the, the causal factors. If we want to change what's happening in the manifested reality, we have to change what's going on in the things that are causing it. That, and those factors lie in the human mind, in the human psyche, in the human heart. And we need to understand and, and recognize those factors if we're going to change what's happening in the external domain. So um, everybody who's in that area, uh, please definitely get together with friends and family members and you know tell them this is information that you need to hear, that you need to see, that you need to be present for. Let's attend it together and make a day of it. Uh, so that's coming up October 19th in New Haven, Connecticut. All right, so those are all the event announcements, and uh, let's move to our subject material for today, which is the homework results from the first natural law seminar here in Philadelphia. I'll be posting uh, all the slides with the podcast, and I will try to do my best to... Um, be accurate in giving the appropriate slide number for the slide that I am talking about. So uh, this is going to be in four sections. There were four homework assignments uh, that had results that were tabulated. Uh, there was a couple other homework assignments that were um, essay-related uh, or ongoing um, work with others that were related to ongoing work with other people. So they didn't have actual uh, results that were uh, tabulated and analyzed in the way that these other four weeks uh, were. So while the seminar itself was six weeks, that this is why there are only four uh, sections of homework results uh, with uh, actual pie charts and charts and graphics and things like that. So let's look at the homework results for week one of the natural law seminar. This assignment was given on week one, it was turned in on week two, and then these results were presented on week three to the class. Slide number one is just the title slide for the homework results, and uh, you could see that the background pattern uh, was an, an alchemical like woodcut or um, um, motif of the sacred temple uh, the esoteric temple that exists within humanity, uh, which is the combination of the different aspects of human consciousness, uh, namely the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine components of consciousness symbolized by the two pillars, symbolism which we've covered extensively here in former uh, editions, uh, episodes of What on Earth is Happening. So that's the title slide, and uh, that's just a brief explanation for why I chose that background image for the Natural Law Seminar. Okay, so what was the first homework assignment? The first homework assignment I'm going to read to you right now, and uh, this is the results that we're actually going to analyze. The first class on the Natural Law Seminar dealt with human desires and values. It dealt with objective truth versus the ideology of solipsism. It dealt with free will and personal responsibility. It dealt with the worldview um, schism or the uh, different types of worldviews that are held by people like randomness, randomness and determinism. It dealt with um, the concepts of uh, knowledge versus belief holding a belief system versus actually having real knowledge, direct first-hand knowledge of something. 
and it dealt with human the concept of human nature as it is thought about by most people versus conditions that they live in, which has often been called nurturing conditions or nur- simply nurture. So nature versus nurture was also a theme during week number one. The directions for this homework assignment were as follows. The students were to choose five people each and ask them the following questions that are given in the homework assignment. They were supposed to choose someone other than their own spouse or significant other or their own children, but anyone else was fair game. In other words, I was trying to limit it away from people who actually live in their own homes uh, as a spouse or children because their thinking would probably be much more influenced by the person themselves than uh, people who they don't live with. Although I allowed other family members, uh, as long as they don't really, you know, directly live with them in the same immediate household. The uh, further instructions were to ask them these questions, uh, ask them to answer these questions, the five people that you chose, as honestly as possible, and to tell them that their answers would be recorded completely anonymously, so no one would know their names, and, you know, not to feel free to give completely honest answers. They were to present the questions to them in uh, as clear, audible, and steady a voice as possible using appropriate uh, emphasis where necessary to ask the questions, and to make every effort not to influence their answers in any way, to try to, you know, uh, influence them toward one way or another, just to get their honest answers and record them anonymously. Their answers were to be recorded completely anonymously on the provided answer sheets, and then to be turned in in next week's class. So let's get started with the first uh, round of, of results. The first question was that they were to ask people is, what are the three things that you desire most in life? And the, the results came back that the number one response was happiness or personal satisfaction. Some people also said comfort and peace of mind for oneself. So their own happiness, their own satisfaction, their own comfort. That was the number one response of what people want. Okay, so I'll say this once again. The number one thing that most people want is for themselves to be happy, satisfied, and comfortable. That's the number one response. The second number one response was, uh, the second response given was success, personal success, personal wealth, personal prosperity. In other words, they wanted their career to be successful and they want money flowing in. That's the number two response, almost as popular as the first one, not quite. Uh, The first response had 20.61% of the total responses given for this question. The second, and again, this is slide number two for week one results. The the second result was success, wealth, prosperity, career, money, totaling 16.03% of the total responses to this question. Number three was health, personal health, their own health. Okay, so in the top three, for the responses to the question, what are the three things you desire most in life? My 
own happiness and satisfaction, my own success and prosperity was second, and my own health was third. The uh, health comprised 13.74% of the total responses to this question. Fourth was love and personal relationships in my life. So, um, for the individual, the relationships with other people taking place in their life, that's what they want. Okay, so that was 12.21% of the total responses. We only get to a dynamic that doesn't really involve the individual, the, the self, in the number five most popular result, which was peace. Meaning, I guess, peace in the community, in the society, in the world. Okay, So that was 6.1%, but you could see how low the percentage already is in who responded with something that was outside of themselves, not directly related uh, to their own particular situation or life. The next response, response number six, was my family's success or my family's health, comprising 5.34%. The seventh result was that they wanted a family. They wanted to start a family or have children. That was 4.58%. Another dynamic, so we, we, there we went back to things related to service to the self or directly uh, related to the individual. Then we go back to a, a non-self-serving response, which is freedom. Now that could mean their own freedom too. But in general, I think they mean freedom for, you know, just freedom in the world in general. That was 2.29%. So just over 2% wanted freedom at all. And these are total responses. Of of all the responses that everyone said, only three responses were for freedom. Totaling 2.29% of all responses. Physical things and possessions, like a house, a car, etc., were as popular as freedom, uh, totaling 2.29%. Moving to slide number three in this section, uh, it's a continuation with the the lower results that only had a couple of responses. Uh, Food, power, safety or security, service to others, and sex all had two responses each, totaling 1.53% each for those particular responses. Then we had varied responses. Each had one response each and totaling 0.76%, each. Uh, children with morals, that was an interesting response. Connection to nature, uh, education, equality, ethical living, friendship, Honesty, kindness, longevity, loyalty, service to God, and spreading happiness to others were uh, all had one response each, again totaling 0.76% each. So, moving on to slide number four, this is a pie chart breaking down the responses that either contained the dynamic of service to self versus the dynamic of service to others. So was the response either service to self or service to others related? And when you total all of those results and make a a, a chart or a a pie chart graphic like this, you see that 
84% of the total responses to this first question, what do you desire most in your life? What do you want in life? 84% of people give a response related to a selfish motive, service to self. They only want something that is related to something directly in their life, directly affecting them in in their personal situation. 84%. Only 16% of responses dealt with service to others in any way, as in peace, freedom, uh, equality, justice, etc. Anything like that only comprised about 16% of responses. So an overwhelming imbalance toward service to self versus service to others. I would suggest that this is, again forms part of the why that human beings are in the situation that they are in. Let's move on to the next slide, slide number five. What are the three things, the, que- the question number two now, what are the three things you value the most in life? Th- the three things you value the most in life. Not that you desire, but what do you value? These comprise your personal value system, Okay. The number one response overwhelmingly was family. And again, I don't think that that's a necessarily bad result to say that I value my family, the actual people around me in my life. However, this familial identification of these are the people who I identify with is still what I would call something that is not going to help to get done what we need to get done it's not uh, yes it is a value and don't get me wrong i'm not saying these people are not valuable to people i'm not saying that you shouldn't value your family members or that you shouldn't value those who are very close to you in your life what i'm saying is that family isn't a it's not a quality that you value when you think when you really think of values you're, you're looking at a quality that is present in your life. Now, again, we're, we're saying it could be anything. We're not saying that you have to choose a value like faith or uh, knowledge or truth or something like that. We didn't say you had to pick what is considered a um, um, conceptual value, that you could say anything. So if money is the thing that you value most in life, be honest and say money. If it's your jewelry or your clothes or whatever, uh, the kind of car you drive, um, people were free to say anything here. I'm just pointing out that this is what people identify with. The things that people find the most valuable and say that they think are the most valuable are the things that they identify with in life. So it's interesting to see whether we're getting to Things that could and should be considered real values versus things that are simply things that people identify with. I just wanted to make that clarification before we continue with the responses. Number one response family with over 25% of the total responses. A full quarter of the people who, uh, of the responses to this question were family. 25.2%. Health was the next thing and meaning their own personal health. 11.81%. Their own family, uh, I'm sorry, their own friends or friendship in general, 
was 7.87% of the total responses. Their own personal relationships with others or love. In other words, I would say that this is probably related to romantic love interest in their life. 5.51%. We still haven't really hit what I would consider a real value. Yet. Okay? Success, wealth, prosperity, career, money. Again, their own personal success, their own personal prosperity, money in general, f- f- was, was fifth with 4.72%. Their own happiness, satisfaction, and comfort, 3.94%. That was next. I would say we start to hit real values at this point in the chart, which is, a, it's very interesting. The things that people um, desire most in life I would say we started hitting real values. Well, peace, we we hit at about 6%, and then others came in at about 2%. Uh, We see the same dynamic in general here with education, faith, freedom, knowledge, uh, all comprising 2.36%. Then we have life itself, 2.36%. Resilience, an interesting response, Uh, Courage or resilience, 2.36%. Respect with the same, 2.36%. Truth coming down at the same level, about a little over 2%. It was in the results. I I was pretty shocked to even see the three people listed truth when responding to this question. What are the three things you value most in life? Okay. And uh, beauty was next uh, beauty, courage, justice, security, spirituality, or religion all came in at about 1.57%. And then varied responses, once again, uh, with only one response each, comprising about 0.79%, 0.79% of responses. Uh, rounding out the list were compassion, cultural identity, discernment, equality, food, generosity, goodness, home, humility, individualism, kindness, laughter, loyalty, nature, peace, reliability, service to others, and work ethic. When I made a pie chart with all of these responses, what I was looking for is to try to find out, again, relating this to the natural law seminar and helping the people to understand uh, these results and how the mindset that people have is not conducive to generating freedom. It's not conducive to becoming a truly free people that are not enslaved. I looked at all of the responses that have something to do with, directly have to do with, truly generating a world of freedom, holding these values in place, for within oneself have to do with making a world that is um, operating under natural law in a harmonious way, in other words, okay? And those dynamics or values are as follows. They are truth, knowledge, freedom, courage, justice, wisdom, etc., Okay, we're talking about actual, real 
value systems. Okay? Things that, again, if people hold them to be truly valuable in their minds and in their hearts and then acted upon those values, the world would be free and the people of the earth would be free. When you put all of those together, uh, and this is slide number seven in section one in homework result one, you see that only about 10%, approximately 10% of responses had to do with values that are capable of generating a world of freedom. And again, those values were truth, knowledge, freedom, courage, and justice. Not one person on the whole thing actually used the word wisdom to describe something that they want, uh, that they valued. They, their wisdom was not on the chart. Okay? Again, very telling that people don't value wisdom or philosophy, philos. The love of wisdom, philosophy, sophos, wisdom in Greek, and philos, sophos. Philos meaning love, sophos meaning wisdom. They don't value philosophy. They don't value wisdom. It wasn't one of the responses. I was even shocked to see that truth made it onto the chart with a few responses. Totaling 2% of the total um, of what people value most in life. And with, res- with responses like that, with truth coming in that low, we can't possibly be free. It's not, po- it's not possible. Knowledge, 2.3%. We're going to see so much cognitive dissonance and mental schism in later results. Um, Let's move on to the next slide, the third question. Do you think that the following set of statements considered as a whole is true or false? And here's what we asked. Okay, so do you think this is true in general, this statement considered as a whole, these statements, or is it false? Truth is singular. There is no such thing as my truth, his truth, or her truth. There is only the truth. There is only one way that things actually are, which exists separately and independently from human perception. So in other words, all human beings can do is align their perception to that truth, to what is. Is there a way that things are, that which is? And it's human being's job to align their perception to that which is such that they can understand it in a clear way. Recognize it and understand it. So what we're really asking here is, is truth objective or is it based upon perception, meaning is it subjective? So we're talking about here general objective knowledge versus subjective opinion. Which thing is true? Is everything just a matter of opinion and there is no, actually no truth? Or, and it's all based on perception, which is called solipsism. Okay, we're, we're really trying to find out here how many people are solipsistic, whether they're outright solipsists or not. How many people believe that truth can be known? All right, or that it even exists at all objectively, that it exists objectively. Okay, so the people that said, yes, truth is singular and it exists objectively, independently from human perception, 
was 42.55% of the responses. More people think that truth is based on human perception, that it does not exist independently. 57.45%. Once again, a very telling fig figures here. Very telling figures. Moving to slide nine, I made a pie chart on this. This is what we were really asking. The, the, the question up here is worded in the way that what we're really asking, okay? We were asking them, is truth singular, meaning that it is objective, or is it different for everyone based upon human perception, meaning that it is subjective? And look at the breakdown. 42.55% versus 57.45% that said it was objective, this doesn't bode well, folks. I mean, again, if truth is totally subjective and is a matter of opinion, we can get to make up what's right and wrong. That's why we're in the situation that we're in. People don't think that there's actually a way that things are, and it's their obligation to discover the way things actually are by aligning their perception to truth, which is objective. Perception, yes, it is, a, it is subjective, but what is, is objective. And it's, it's our work to align our perception to the objective truth. Most people don't see it that way, which is why we're in the prison that we're in. When you have closer to 60%, 6 out of 10 thinking truth is something we get to make up, versus about 4 out of 10 who say, no, truth is something we have to observe and align our perceptions to so that we can understand it. The people that actually believe truth is objective are in the minority. And that's why we're in a prison as a species. One of the many reasons. The next slide, slide number 10. Question number four. Choose the, follow, choose the set of statements from the following set of statements, which most closely resembles your own thinking. Now again, you don't have to agree with every single thing written in these two sets of statements. So yet, is this a dialectic? Yes, it is. Deliberately constructed to be a dialectic. To see in general where people's mindset is at. So between these two responses, what we're asking them to pick is which response most closely. That's why it's bolded, underlined, and italicized. Most closely resembles the way you think. That's the question. Here's the two set of statements. A. The truth about events, circumstances, situations, or happenings in the world can be known. Reality is not based upon perceptions or opinions. Reality is, quote, the way things actually are, unquote. Reality is based upon truth, which is objective and knowable. That truth is knowable. Again, this deals with, is the person solipsistic or are they not solipsistic? Okay? That's set of statements A. Set of statements B. The truth about events, circumstances, situations, or happenings in the world cannot really be known. Perception is reality. Reality, like perception, is relative. 
there is really no such thing as, quote, definitive truth, unquote, or, quote, the way things actually are, unquote. There is no such thing as that. Reality is subjective and therefore ultimately unknowable. It, truth cannot really be known. Okay, now, the results, the people who believe that truth is knowable comprised almost 60%. 59.57% said A, truth is essentially objective and knowable. B, that truth is really unknowable, cannot really be known, comprised 40%, 40.43% of the responses. Breaking this down onto a pie chart in slide number 11, the question really boiled down to, can truth be known or is it unknowable? About, it was about a 60-40 split with 60% saying truth is knowable, but really let this sink in, folks. Four out of 10 human beings. And again, you could say, oh, these aren't, this isn't uh, representative of the total mass of humanity. You only had a small cross-section asked. Yes, that's true. However, my extrapolation here or best guesstimate, if you will, would be if you did ask these questions to an extended audience that it was global, you would probably come up with similar results to these results because the results are fairly randomized um, and they weren't they didn't focus on any kind of a particular target audience. However, I would say that the results are probably very slightly skewed toward the positive because you have to remember the people that are actually asking these questions are very conscious individuals that want to learn more about natural law and attend a seminar like this. So they themselves are ready individuals. They're, they're open to receiving truth and they are thinking about these things and they're, they're conscious. They're, they're awake or awakening. And... I would suggest that that very dynamic skews the results toward, toward the positive because they're probably uh, reaching out to some people that they know and by definition, since they know them, they have influenced them in some ways in their life. So I wouldn't say that this constitutes a totally random series of responses because again, we're dealing with largely conscious individuals that are asking the questions. Okay, and, and collecting the, the data. By definition, right there, you have, uh, I would say, results that are going to be slightly skewed toward the positive. So I would probably say that this dynamic is worse in the world at large. And probably more than 40 people are solipsistic and believe that truth cannot be known. But it's about a 60-40 split, which to me is incredibly disturbing already. And it should be incredibly disturbing to anyone looking at these results. That a full 40% of people believe that it is impossible to know anything. It is impossible to know truth. Essentially, knowledge cannot actually be acquired. You can only have an opinion on something. Imagine that. Imagine. It's, it's amazing. Amazing. Moving on to the next slide, slide number 12 in section one, homework result one. 
um, the next question, question number five was, on a scale of one to 10, with one being the least and 10 being the most, how important is the role of truth and knowledge in your life? So we just had a bunch of people in the previous question say that truth is subjective and truth is unknowable. And now we're asking them, well, how important do you think truth is? And I think where most people are interpreting this is how important do you think being told the truth to you or being lie versus being lied to to you is? That you are receiving something that is true. Okay? 46.81% of all total responses were a 10 for this result. 10 out of 10. The next po most popular response was 8, totaling 25.53. The next was 9, totaling 19.15. Then 7 with 4.26 and 6 with 4.26. No one responded 5 or below. The average, if you average all of these out, was 9 out of 10. That's how important truth is, truth and knowledge are to people. And personally, I, in general, think that this is a bunch of BS and call bullshit on it, okay? Because the previous two responses show the mental schism. You had 60% of people saying truth was relative... And 40% saying it was unknowable. And now you have a, you know, overwhelming percentage saying that it's actually important to them in their life. I don't believe that for an instant. I don't believe they care about truth at all. First of all, in the responses that they about what they valued in life, truth only rated 2% of total responses. So how could anybody say that it's truly valuable to them? After this was their response in the previous questions. And again, that's why I we asked the question later on. You can see how the questioning is constructed to get more honest answers. Okay? So, 9 out of 10 people say it's very important to them in their life. The pie chart for this is on... I'm sorry, uh, 9 out of 10 was the average response about how important it was to them in their life. Which, again, I don't really believe. Uh, the pie chart for that was on slide number 13 for this section. How important is the role of truth and knowledge in your life? And there's the breakdown of uh, responses. Let's move to the next question, slide number 14. Question number six, choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A, human beings have free will. Human beings have the ability to choose which actions they will or will not take. Human behavior is not predetermined. Human behavior is ultimately based upon free will choice, which is each individual's personal responsibility. That's set of statements A. Set of statements B. Human beings do not have free will. Human beings do not have the ability to choose which actions they will or will not take. Human behavior is predetermined. The behavior of human beings is ultimately bound by conditions and factors which are beyond their control, so therefore each individual cannot truly be held personally responsible for everything they do. So does free will exist and are people responsible for their own behavior, or does free will not exist and people are just like programmed and it's all predetermined and they're not responsible for what they do? The responses, 
87.23% of people said, A, human beings have free will and are responsible for their behavior ultimately. 12.77% said, no, we are pre-programmed. Every uh, behavior is predetermined and we're not responsible for what we do. The breakdown of this in a pie chart is given on slide number 15. Do human beings have free will? Over 87% saying yes and just under 13% saying no. And I think that's an encouraging response. I do think people are being honest that they do think people have free will. Because I think inherently people know that that's true. We do have free will. We do have the ability to choose which actions we will or will not take in the end, ultimately. Everything else is a cop-out by people who just don't want the moral responsibility to choose right action over wrong action. They want to try to abdicate that responsibility in their life. Next slide, slide number 16. Question number 7. Again, choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. Everything in A, everything in life is chaotic and it's happening at random. Life in general was a cosmic accident and there does not seem to be any grand purpose or meaningful reason for human existence. Or any existence really for that matter. There's no purpose for anything. B, everything in life is preordained. God is making everything happen and God knows exactly how it is all going to play out. Free will is an illusion because God is in total control of everything at all times and places. C, both randomness and structure exist in the universe simultaneously. The creator does not control every event within the creation. We have been gifted with free will to choose our behaviors, but when we act, there are consequences to our actions which ultimately create the reality that we experience. The people who said A, everything is chaotic and happening at random, comprised 8.51% of responses. The people who said B, everything in life is preordained and God controls it all, 10.64% of total responses. And C, both randomness and, and structure exist simultaneously. So what we were getting at is, are there such a thing as consequences to our behaviors? Yet, there is also free will to choose our behaviors. So there's that structure and randomness existing simultaneously. And... Question C, 80.85% responded with C, the overwhelming majority. Looking at this breakdown on a pie chart in slide number 17, is your worldview one of randomness, determinism, or a mixture of both? That's essentially what we were asking there. And you see the breakdown there. About... 10% each, uh, approximately 20%, uh, either falling on the side of randomness, which is a very left-brain worldview, or determinism, which is a very right-brain worldview, <clears throat> with about 80% saying, no, they think it's a mixture of both. And I think that this question is skewed by the way I worded it, Okay. If we just gave them a chance between randomness and determinism, they probably would have picked one or the other and not said it's something else. If I didn't 
really elaborate on what that third position could be. <clears throat> but having done that, 8 out of 10 people chose that third position. Which I think is good because I think they inherently know that that's true. And it resonates with them and that's why they answered that in the moment. Um, because I do think people do think we do have free will, and I do think somewhere down the line, inherently, somewhere inside of them, they uh, instinctively know that there's such a thing as natural law operating, and that there are consequences to our behavior, even if they don't occur in the physical domain brought about by other human beings. There are still consequences. So, I look at this one as a pretty positive result, albeit skewed by the way I asked the question. Next slide, number 18. Question number eight. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. Beliefs A. Beliefs and opinions are very important when it comes to determining what is true or false. Beliefs and opinions also matter a great deal when it comes to determining what is happening in our world. Things can only really affect me if I believe they are real. If I don't believe in something, it can't really affect me in any way or have any negative impact upon my life. My beliefs and opinions ultimately determine what I think is real or not. Set of statements B. When it comes to what is true or false, beliefs and opinions are pretty much meaningless. Truth can be recognized and discovered, and it exists independently of human perceptions, opinions, or beliefs. Whether or not something in the world can affect my life does not depend upon my belief in it. My beliefs and opinions do not determine what is actually happening or whether something is real or not. The responses. 34.04% of people believe that beliefs and opinions are very important when it comes to determining what is true or not. 34% think that their own beliefs have to do with whether or not something is true. The people who said B formed 65.96%, almost 66%. This is broken down in a pie chart on slide number 19. The question that we were really asking here, worded differently, is are your personal beliefs important when it comes to determining truth? In other words, are, are you the arbiter of truth? And a full third of people believe that they are the arbiter of truth. 34% of people choosing, saying, yes, my beliefs ultimately determine whether something is real or not. Now, people will say, well, hey, it's good that more people are, you know, saying no, that's not true, almost two-thirds. But think about how disturbing this is. One in three people believe that they get to make up what's true or not based on their belief system at any given time. Think about that. One out of three people believe they can get to make up what's true based upon their belief system at any given time. That's what we're really seeing here in this result. If that doesn't disturb you, I don't know what will. Next slide, slide number 20. Question number nine, when encountering information... 
that conflicts with something you currently believe to be true, which statement below most closely describes your approach to that information? A. So what we're asking is you encounter information that's uncomfortable because it conflicts with your pre-existing belief. How do you handle that? A. I usually think that information like that can't possibly be true. So more likely than not, I will not look into it for myself to see if there is anything to it. And B, or B, I will usually check to find out if the information has merit or not. After I look into it for myself, if I determine it was true, even if it conflicted with what I previously thought, I will adjust my own views accordingly. Now, this is one of the most skewed responses that we got. Overwhelmingly imbalanced response toward one answer or another. The people who said A, they will not look at any uncomfortable information, even if it, uh, when it conflicts with their pre-existing beliefs, only formed about 2%. 2.13%. As a matter of fact, only one person admitted that. Would admit that. giving response B that if they encounter information that's uncomfortable, they'll look into it for themselves. They'll determine whether it's true or not, and then they will adjust their own perceptions, their own views accordingly. They will do the diligent research, even in the face of the total discomfort that it causes them to look at their own existing belief system and say, wow, I was wrong about that, and then they will admit that they were wrong and they will adjust their views accordingly. 98% of human beings said, yes, I will do that. And do you know what... Just let's look at this for a moment, folks. Let's look at this being one of the most completely imbalanced responses that we got. Overwhelmingly, people are convinced in their own mind that they will look at something that conflicts with their pre-existing belief. 97% point eight seven percent so this is broken down in the pie chart on slide number 21 when encountering uncomfortable information that conflicts with something you currently believe do you dismiss it or do you look into it for yourself and there's the pie chart breakdown slide number 21 do you know what this represents ultimately this represents a whole lot of bullshit. <coughs> That's what it represents. All I have to say is that these people are doing nothing but lying to themselves. And I'm going to prove it. We're going to prove this. Not, not just going to make a ad hominem attack and speculate. We prove this in the next homework assignment which is coming up, okay? And show that the dynamic is actually almost entirely reversed, sadly. But for now, that's all I'll say about that result, and we'll revisit it a little bit later. Next slide, slide number 23. Question number 10. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A. Human nature is fundamentally bad. People are born with many flaws and they generally stay that way throughout their lives. It is pretty much impossible to change human beings' nature. That's just how it is. B. Human nature is fundamentally good. 
People come into the world in an unflawed condition. People can make mistakes in their lives, but deep down inside, human beings are just good people by their nature. C. Human nature is neither good nor bad. The human condition can be influenced toward either the positive or negative, based upon the quality of surroundings and life interactions in which human beings exist. While an individual may influence positive change in their own condition, if they work to improve themselves, conditions are still more fundamental to the ways most human beings behave than any inherent qualities or characteristics that they may possess. So, we ask people which one of those sets of statements they most closely think like. 4.25% said A, that human nature is fundamentally bad and can't be changed. 21.28% said human nature is fundamentally good. People are unflawed and they're just good by their nature. And... 74.47%, almost three out of four people, said human nature is neither good nor bad. The human condition is influenced based on surroundings, life situations, etc. Knowledge or lack of knowledge, etc. Now, while yes, I agree with that result, that three out of four people said that the way people behave is influenced by conditions, okay? That that's ultimately our nature, that we are influenceable and programmable. I agree with that. What I do highly suggest is that this is another very skewed result based on how I asked the question, how the question was worded. More people will go with that third response instead of the first two dialectical responses. When given a choice to take the third option, Even though that third option, yes, I I do feel that it is true. So again, this is a good result, but I think a skewed result nonetheless. The pie chart is on slide number 24. Is human nature good, bad, or simply influenced by the conditions in which the human being lives? So is, is it actually about nature or is it actually about nurture? And three out of four people are saying it's about nurture, which again, I believe is true. Um, let's go to slide number 25. Question number 11. What is the first single word that comes to your mind when you hear the word occult? Occult. And as predicted, the number one response was evil or bad with comprising 21.28% of the total responses. Evil, bad, darkness, danger, or negativity. The next most popular response, very interestingly and surprisingly, was, I have no idea what that word means. I don't know what the word means. I've never heard the word before. Now think about that for a minute. 17% of people who were asked what the word occult meant said they've never heard of the word. An additional 17% said that they feel that it is simply associated with a particular form of occult practice, such as magic, witchcraft, voodoo, or devil worship. So those responses totaled 17% as well. The fourth most popular response was the correct answer. Hidden, to hide, 
or secret, kept secret. With 10.64% of people actually getting the right answer about what the word occult means. Uh, Non-related or nonsensical or just completely other wrong answers were uh, one each, uh, totaling about 2% each with black, brainwash, Catholicism, control, deceive, fringe, Hollywood, incorporeal, religion, scary, science, spirit world, stars, talismans, truth, or wow. A lot of those don't even make any sense, but uh, those were the other responses. I broke this down. Uh, This is the last slide, uh, slide number 26 in this section. We have three more assignments to go through, but in this section... Uh, The last slide is slide number 26. What is the first single word that comes to your mind when you hear the word occult? This is the breakdown on a pie chart with only about 10% of people knowing what the word occult means. 90% of people do not know what that word even means. And we think we're going to get out of this situation with 9 out of 10 people not even knowing what the word occult means, let alone looking into it or studying it in any form of a deep way for themselves. Good luck with that. Okay, so let's move on to week number two of the homework results. This is, uh, we're moving to the next section of slides. Slide number one is the title slide, week two homework results. Slide number two is the directions for this week's homework. Uh, In week number two, I gave a homework assignment that... um, people had to actually interact with another person and try to convince them that they were wrong about something that they currently believed, essentially. So here's the actual instructions. Choose one person whom you feel is partially or completely uninformed regarding and even possibly resistant to discussing something that you consider critically important to understand during the times in which we are living. For example, the false left-right paradigm, the police state measures that are being taken against the public, uh, 9-11 truth issues, the, federal re- the fraud of the Federal Reserve System, U- United States military imperialism, uh, poison in our food, water, drugs, vaccines, etc., chemtrails, eugenics, etc., any of these topics or anything else, you know, just something that you feel is very important to understand and you feel that this person is completely uninformed about and don't know about and need to know about. And uh, you want to pick somebody who you know that they're uninformed or, or that they're even resistant to discussing these topics. Attempt to engage this individual in a conversation about the topic you've chosen. Bring any necessary documentation or evidence you wish to show them. Your specific aim and intent should be to help this person to understand why this is something that is important for them to know about. Engage the individual for at least 15 minutes, pressing them even if they say they are not interested in the topic. If their reaction is cold or unresponsive, attempt to find out why they don't want to discuss the topic or why they are so resistant to hearing information which conflicts with what they already believe. 
write an essay about your experience, citing details about the mental and emotional dynamics experienced by both yourself and the person you chose to engage. I specifically want to hear about what the other person said in response to the information you attempted to convey, your perception of what the other person was feeling, and most of all, what you personally were feeling during this discussion. Do not use names, including your own, when describing the experience. So this is a completely double anonymous thing. I didn't want to know who was writing the essays. I didn't want to know who they were interviewing. All I was interested in is the dynamics, the emotional and psychological dynamics involved in the, in, in the interaction between these individuals. Okay, so let's look at the results. There were nine interviewees altogether uh, out of the people who actually did this assignment. Their ages were 21, 30, 38, 40, 50, 55, 63, 68, and 74 for an average age of interviewees or the people who were actually um, approached to, to discuss these topics uh, uh, with by the students. Uh, their average ages were 55, the average age. We asked people to ask them for their professions if they wished to give it. So we had a builder who was, con and believe it or not, it's very interesting, the topics that they chose to, con the people chose to confront certain individuals on, on certain topics. So the builder uh, was confronted on 9-11 truth. So he should know engineering skills and building, uh, you know, factors. And uh, we'll look at the results. But the uh, the law student was approached about the police state measures that are happening. The nurse was approached about um, health and how the modern so-called health system is not really helping people to generate health, but instead uh, largely hurting them through the form of medicine that they're practicing. And the teacher was talked about so-called education, which is indoctrination. Those were the four people that actually gave um, uh, their professions. So we had a builder, a law student, a nurse, and a teacher involved in this uh, interaction. Slide, that was slide number three. Now, slide number four shows the mental and emotional dynamics of the interviewees, the people that are being actually asked to discuss these, these things. Okay? Uh, there, uh, and again, many different topics were given. And what we saw is that the dynamics that were expressed by the people who were confronted or, you know, were approached to have a conversation on these things were all either skewed toward left brain imbalance or right brain imbalance. There was absolutely no centeredness or no blending of the hemispheres of the brain. It was always, at every time that they were uh, responding, the responses were always imbalanced toward one brain hemisphere or the other. So let's look at this slide in depth and uh, look at some of the mental and emotional dynamics that were taking place within the minds of the interview interviewees. They were, in the, in the essays that the students wrote, they described that these people contained, that the, these dynamics were going on in the people that they were, quote, interviewing or having a discussion with, that they were emotionally disconnected and completely didn't care about the topic that was brought up.
They just wanted to be doing something else. They didn't care. It wasn't something that they were concerned with, interested in it at all. They were emotionally detached and disconnected and didn't care. That's one of the dynamics that you saw throughout the essays. They uh, said that they had a lack of imagination or displayed completely inside-the-box thinking. Now, not to suggest that they should be imagining things instead of try to discover the truth, but they what they were saying is they couldn't imagine that the truth could be something other than the way that the official story that they had already accepted or the official paradigm that they had already accepted was. They displayed complete closed-mindedness, denial. They were in denial. No matter how much evidence was given to them, the evidence didn't matter. They were unwilling to look at the evidence they were completely unwilling to look at the evidence if it was in contradiction to their pre-existing belief system or paradigm. They did not want to hear it at all. Okay, and this is completely the opposite of what they said in week number one. It wasn't the same people, but in general, people said, oh, we're, we're open-minded, we're willing to learn new things, even if it conflicts with what we already think. And nothing could be further from the truth. They were completely closed-minded, and they were in complete denial and that they were they were unwilling to look at any of the evidence there was condescension and dismissal of the evidence even without looking into it at all total condescension total dismissal one of the quotes that was in one of the essays uh someone said if this were true i'd already know about it imagine that you think you already know everything you need to know that was the attitude. I already know everything I need to know. If this were true, I'd already know about it. Imagine that. They displayed annoyance, anger, and even sometimes rage at what the people were trying to tell them. They kept repeating the same thing over and over, as if repeating the lie would make it more true. Repeating something over and over and over again. Well, this is what we were told. This is what we were told. It couldn't have happened this way in, in an example like 9-11 truth or this is what doctors say how things are. Uh, you know, it, it can't have anything to do with what you're saying it has to do with in, in the healthcare industry. Repetition. Just keep saying the same thing over and over again and that'll magically make it true. They displayed ad hominem attacks over and over again. They would not look at the evidence, at the material. All they would do is say, you're crazy. You're a conspiracy theorist. Ad hominem attacks. Attack the messenger. Try to say something nasty about the person who's trying to give the information, but forget about engaging the information. doesn't matter what the information is. You're not going to say, I'm going to refute this based on this evidence to the contrary and provide the evidence. No, you're just going to say, I think you're crazy. An ad hominem attack. Someone even displayed bigotry when we we're talking about, uh, they were talking about 9-11. You know, uh, disdain for Muslims and etc. Disdain for others who are not like themselves. And then there was selfishness. Some people said, well, even if I admit that this is happening, this doesn't concern me directly. Or I'm not going to try to even do anything about it unless it actually affects my own personal life situation in my own personal life. Whatever other injustices are going on, that's outside of myself and I'm not concerned with that until it happens to me. Someone actually said that in one of the essays. 
selfishness and concern only for oneself. And people repeatedly made justifications trying to say, well, this is okay because, etc., so forth. Offering justifications for wrongdoings and injustices that were happening constantly. The right side of imbalance, the right brain imbalanced mental and emotional dynamics that were written about in these essays after I broke down the essays and analyzed them are as follows. People said that they felt that these people that they were trying to speak to and give information to were completely indoctrinated, that they had just totally accepted what had been told to them through an indoctrination tactic and weren't interested in real learning, that they were they, they weren't interested in actually going through an educational process which involved truth discovery methods. They just were constantly just wanted to accept and receive whatever the quote experts or the officials or the the official story pumped out. Okay, they displayed continuous logical fallacies and inconsistencies in attempting to even refute the evidence that was being presented to them. Because again, these people who were talking with them brought a lot of evidence to support their claims. In trying to refute their claims, it was all only based on opinions and logical fallacies. They never attempted to refute the claim with any counter of information, ever. So only logical fallacies and inconsistencies were offered as refutation toward the person's, uh, the student's evidence that they were providing when they made their claims. Okay? Uh, Another right brain dynamic was naivete and blind belief. Or in other words, total acceptance of the official information without any supporting evidence to back it up. They just believed it like a religion. Again, a hallmark of right brain imbalance, naivete. Cognitive dissonance. Their pre-existing belief was conflicting with something that could be shown to them and demonstrated absolutely. So their pre-existing belief conflicts with reality and overrides the reality. They would rather choose to believe in something rather than to accept data or truth which was being uh, shown evidentially with actual provided evidence. They were constantly deferring to experts. Well, the people on the news said this, the government said this, the doctor said this. It didn't matter what could be shown to them to the contrary about those statements, they would say, well, that's what the news said, that's what the media said, that's what the government said, that's what the doctor said, etc. Okay? So, deference to experts. Trust of the mainstream media was displayed over and over again. Uh, One of the quotes by one of the uh, interviewees Why wouldn't I have heard about this on the news? If this were true, the news would be telling us this. They actually still, people still believe this. They don't understand how the media is completely owned and controlled and co-opted and is being used for evil propaganda. They don't get it. Most people still don't get it, folks. Please do not think you're in the majority, the people who understand what's going on in this world. There's a lot of work to do to bring a whole lot of people over to the side of the truth, and we have to get busy doing it. So, uh, more right-brain forms of imbalance, trust of government. Not only did they 
uh, trust the mainstream media by saying, why wouldn't they have told us about all this on the news? They trust the government. Why would the government lie to us? They're about our best interests. They're about helping people. They're about providing for us. They're about defending us. Why would they be lying to us about this or that? Why wouldn't the government be telling us the truth? This is where people's mindset is at, ladies and gentlemen. They still trust the government. And finally, people uh, wrote that the interviewees expressed total lack of will to understand. Lack of will, complete disempowerment. No desire to want to know. No desire to want to change. People, The older people would say, I'm too old to change. When people were presented with different things you could do to take charge of your health and give up the unhealthy ways of eating, they, they would say, that's too difficult to do. I can't do that. I don't have the will to do that. And then many people would say, well, even if this is true, what can I do about it? And we've all heard the same thing from people. What can I do? I'm powerless. I have no power to affect change. What can I do about it? All, and these are all, again, hallmarks of right brain imbalance, no will. So we had that schism, the mind control schism. Total left brain imbalance, I know it all. You know, I'm going to attack the messenger. This can't possibly be true or I would already know about it. I don't need to look at the evidence. I already know. Left brain imbalance. Right brain imbalance. I can't do this. I can't change. Other people know better than me. What can I do? You know, why would, other, why would people who say that they have my best interest be lying to me or trying to control me? Okay? Those were the dynamics of all the, almost all of the people, as we will see, who were interviewed or who were attempt, confronted with this information or who were attempted to have a conversation with about a particular topic that made them feel uncomfortable. So slide number five shows the mental and emotional dynamics of the actual students of the seminar, the interviewers, those who were, were coming to these people with the topic. The Natural Law Seminar students, I wrote underneath their NLS students or interviewers. And this is what they felt in their own essays. According to their own words, they felt frustration, disappointment, dejection, disheartenment, anger, annoyance, futility, rejection, isolation, and sorrow. They felt like the guy in this image here with all the people around him asleep and he's sitting there awake but totally dejected with his uh, head in his hands uh, unable to believe that all these other people are completely asleep all around him and this is what the natural natural law seminar students who were the interviewers in this process felt like this is the these are the emotional dynamics that they wrote down about what they were feeling during this process And I totally sympathize with this. I totally understand. I'm not putting this slide up there to continuously re-emphasize these feelings, only to make people aware this is what most people feel when they are attempting to do this work. And again, this is a small demonstration of what the great work really is. Attempting to influence people to take the truth in for themselves and go through a process of truth discovery in their own life. That's what the great work is. Okay? And this is how doing it makes one feel. 
at first and often continuously. I'm not even saying that completely goes away. You have to fight through it. You have to will yourself through this, through all of these feelings to continuously do that work. And that's not easy. It's not easy to do. You have to master yourself. You have to be able to take the reins over your emotions so that you will keep doing the great work of putting the truth out into the world so it cannot be ignored. Most people will do this work for five minutes and give up. I try to tell people to push at least for 15 minutes to the point where I said back off if they you know, get so aggravated that you think it's going to come to any kind of blows or violence. You know, That's not what we were looking for. We're not looking to have somebody end up in the hospital. We're, we're looking to try to explain to people, this is something you need to know about. And I'm concerned that you don't know about it. And I'm going to try to help you to understand it. And you're not correct about your current position on it. And that's a problem because it affects other people, not just yourself. Okay, so if these dynamics are what people are feeling, the key thing to keep in mind here is you have to just be aware this is part of this work. This is why people don't want to do the great work. This is par for the course. It's not an unexpected result. I expect, very much expected this exact result because I, I know how this goes. I've been doing it for a long time and I'm still doing it and I'm going to continue to do it and nothing's going to set me off of that path because, again, while the ego-based small s self may feel some of these emotions from time to time when doing this work, I'm not self serving the ego-based small s self, nor am I even serving the people that I'm taking this information to. I am serving the truth. That's all. It's the way things are. There's nothing emotional to get involved with regarding it. It's what is. The work has to be done almost in a state of emotional detachment. I'm not doing it because I truly care about the people who I'm bringing the information to. They could be complete strangers, and I might not really deeply care about them as far as their personal lives go, especially even about how deep in denial that they are and, and how much they hate truth when it's spoken to them. I'm not doing this because I care so much about them. I'm doing this because I care so much about the truth. That's what I serve. I don't serve human beings. I've made that very, very clear in the past and just reiterating it here. So these are feelings that you're going to encounter. They have to be worked through. They have to be willed through. I'm not saying don't feel them. Emotions are very important. Even these negative ones. It's showing you what your work is to do. That's what self-mastery is about. It's about conquering and moving through even when you're feeling these negative emotions. They're there for a reason. They're showing you what your work is. You got to move through them and do the work anyway. That's what you're charged here to do. And if enough people take on that charge and do it, we'll see actual results. We will see results start to move in the positive direction in the world. The problem is not enough people are doing that work because they can't get past this stage. 
They don't want to experience those emotions. They don't want to experience those feelings. Again, courage is not the lack of fear of something. It's moving through it in spite of the fear of it. And that's what sets so many people off from the great work. They don't want to feel like this. They think, if I do this like you're doing, I'll feel like this all the time. And I'm not going to tell you I don't feel like this sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes I fall back into these feelings. And guess what? It doesn't matter. I work through it. Trudge through it if you have to. I don't let that that rule me. I'm still going to do the work. I'm still going to put the truth out there. So that was the point of this entire exercise. And if we look at the results of the exercise, on the next slide, slide number six in this section, the overall mental and emotional dynamics were that eight out of nine of the interviewees were completely closed-minded. They were firmly rooted in their pre-existing belief systems to the point that they readily dismissed the information with minimal or zero willingness to look into the evidence readily dismiss the topics that were presented to them with minimal or zero willingness to look into the evidence or to even try something different than what they were already doing. They wouldn't look at the evidence. They wouldn't open their minds to a possibility of doing something a different way at all. Completely closed-minded. And uh, the slide here I put seems contradictory because it's a wide open head but you know the the whole idea here is that closed mindedness leads to empty headedness these people don't really know how to think they don't know how to determine truth to determine truth from falsehood they just readily accept anything that's told to them by the so-called authority figures that's why they're in the trance that they're in there's nobody home And not only is there nobody home, they think they know. This is what I've called negative knowledge. Not meaning negative in a uh, good or bad sense, meaning negative in the less than zero sense. Less than zero knowledge they have. Not only don't they have any real knowledge, they have no truth that they've taken in. They, in the place of truth, they've fed a whole bunch of lies. So to to get back to square one where they know zero, you'd have to do a lot of emptying of all those lies out of of the head. To get back to a clean slate where you could start putting it in with good, putting good information into the brain. Negative knowledge. The total percentage here is 88.89%. Almost 90% of people displayed total closed-mindedness in this uh, experiment. In the next slide, now I don't make this, I don't make these numbers up, folks. They are what they are, okay? So again, we're going to see a little bit of synchronicity here, symbolism. 11.11% of people were open-minded, 11.11, for those people who are into the whole 11.11 phenomenon, which I most certainly am, and uh, during my awakening process, I must have seen 11-11 millions of times. Not thousands, not hundreds, not thousands, probably millions of times. It's unbelievable how much this number comes up during a personal awakening process. I would say that that's what it is. It is a call to awakening. You know, I 
very briefly, I think, talked about it in, in the past, but amazingly, 11.11% of people displayed open-mindedness. That was one individual. One interviewee was open-minded enough to look at the evidence that was shown to him that conflicted with what he already believed, and he wanted to hear about why the why, the reasons, the causal factors, and he expressed to the person who brought the information to him gratefulness for having had that conversation with him. One person out of all who were, quote, interviewed. So imagine that. One person out of those nine was open-minded at all. And we saw... Uh, overall, that really that means that uh, moving on to slide number eight, that there were really only there was only one conversation that took place. All of the other things were confrontations. Until you get to a point where there's some sort of a mutual exchange of ideas, okay, and there's a flow going back and forth instead of one person attempting to give information and hitting a wall, okay, and there is absolutely no flow of information. There is no respect back and forth. It is just a one-way thing. That's a confrontation. It's not a conversation. And again, to converse means to change together. You're both learning something in the process. Not to say that there's nothing to be learned from those confrontations, because you could have planted a seed in that confrontation that might spring at a later date. I won't use names here, but um, I'll just give a little anecdote about something that could be considered uh, initially confrontative, but then eventually blooms later on. A friend of ours came to the Free Your Mind conference and didn't know much about any of the topics. This person got so scared by some of the things that were discussed at the Free Your Mind 2 conference that they left, took off. Middle of the conference, she said, I'm not, I'm taking off, I'm not coming back, went drinking. Recent events in this individual's life, and again, that you would say, oh, well, that's closed-minded or it's so fearful that there's no room for growth here, but that's not the case because what they heard during that day was a seed, and it eventually sprouted because we've just recently learned that this individual is going through some hardship in their life, and uh, as a result of that, it's given them a little bit of time to rethink some things. And they revisited mentally the conference and what they heard. And in having some conversations with some other people during the downtime that they were having for family, personal reasons, which I won't get into, they um, uh, looked back at what they heard at the conference and suddenly it all made sense to them. And this person wrote and said, I've had an epiphany and I understand what your conference was about now. I get it. I didn't see it before. But I understand, and, I, and I, I understand what you're trying to do. So it, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's just that's phenomenal. That, that, that It's proof that it's not futile to keep pressing. It's not, resistance is not futile. Even confrontation is not futile. Putting the work forward Putting the information out into the world and continuing to do that work of speaking the truth is not futile. The seeds can sprout at a later time. 
So move through those negative emotions and keep doing it. That's what this whole section was about. And it it came about because I disagree with the hermetic approach. We looked at some of the hermetic principles, the principles of natural law as put forward by hermeticists in the ancient past. And many have talked about, don't try to give this information to the uninitiated, to the, quote, swine. You know, in theosophy, this is also put forward. You know, Blavatsky told people, never uh, try to give people the truth because they'll only hate you for it. I, I disagree with those takes. Not to say I disagree with all the philosophies of these people that we're talking about, hermeticists and theosophists, etc. I agree with that. I disagree with that particular aspect that we're not here to put the truth out for everyone. No one has a monopoly on the truth. It doesn't belong to anyone. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to all. It belongs to everyone. So who are you to say, I'm going to hold this back from people? And again, that's why I'm going to start going into topics that are very controversial and are very um, speculative as well in many cases. Because people need to start thinking about these things. To even have it put out there for their consideration, whether they accept it or not. You don't need to accept it. You need to hear it and then look into it and decide, is this worthy of further pursuit? So we're going to get into human origins on this show. We're going to get into possible uh, interactions with extraterrestrial beings on this show. We're going to get into um, why psychopathy may exist in the human species and what put it there. We're going to get into why the human condition is the way that it is. Possible reasons why that it is the way that it is. Outside of just mind control that keeps it the way that it is. What put it there to begin with? The origins of evil, the origins of this condition of unconsciousness that humanity is in. The origins of slavery, the origins of obsession with things that don't really have any truly inherent intrinsic value. Money, gold, etc. We'll be looking at all this stuff on future shows. So, What this result in week two ultimately comes down to is, moving on to slide number nine now, how open-minded are people really versus how open-minded they think they are? So last week, in week one's results, which I call bullshit on, we looked at how open-minded people believe that they are when we ask them the question, when encountering uncomfortable information that conflicts with something that you currently believe, do you dismiss it or do you look into it for yourself? Only 2% said that they would dismiss it and 98 said that they would look into it. In week number two, homework result, we see that the dynamic is almost completely reversed. On slide number 10, we see the truth now come out. When we actually did this as an experiment, almost 90% of people dismissed the information out of hand, and only about 10 looked into it for themselves. The actual numbers, 88.89% completely dismissed the information without looking into it. Total closed-mindedness. And 11.11% of people actually would look into it. They would open their mind enough to say, wow, this is something I need to look into. I could be wrong about this. 
and thank you for presenting the, this information to me. Now I'm going to look into it on my own. One person out of nine. So this proves my contention that the earlier claims made by people that 98% of them would look into it and see if it was true and then adjust their beliefs accordingly is in fact bullshit. And this proved it. And again, I'm not doing this to discourage anybody. I'm doing it to show people what our work is to do. That's what the work is. This showed the class this in a big way. And I think they were very appreciative of it. Very, very interesting and profound results. Let's move on to week number three. Week number three's homework assignment was, again, ask people questions and tabulate the results. Same as week one. So here were the questions. Uh, slide number one is just the title slide for week three homework results. Let's move to slide number two on the section for week three. Question number one. Do human beings have rights? 87.93% of people said yes. Human beings have inherent natural rights. Amazingly, and people would say, oh, that's great. Almost 88% said yes. But amazingly, 12.07%, 12% of people think there is no such thing as human rights. Human rights don't exist. Human beings don't have rights. There's no such thing as rights, folks. 12%. That's more than 10%. That's more than 1 out of 10 people. 12 out of 100 people believe that there is no such thing as rights. That rights don't exist for human beings. We don't have rights. You could look at this pie chart on slide number 2 here and say, oh, that's a great positive result, but I don't look at it like that. This should be 100%. How could anybody think that there's no such thing as rights? No such thing as human rights. People can do whatever they want. You're never violating anybody else's rights because there's no such thing. That's what this result is saying. 12% of people think like that. That's unbelievable. Unimaginably disturbing. Slide number three. Question number two. Where do human beings' rights come from? So if human beings do have rights, where do they come from? A, here's the choices. A, our rights come from the creator of the universe. And as such, they are the unalienable birthright of every human being. Choice B, rights are philosophical constructs created by human beings. So ultimately, they come from human beings themselves. Choice number C, rights are granted to human beings by government, depending upon the country in which a human being is born. Choice number D, there is no such thing, rights do not exist. And here's the results. Number one response was B. The number one response was B. Rights are philosophical constructs created by human beings, so ultimately rights come from human beings themselves. Forty. 3%, 43.1% of people believe that rights are made up by humans. I'll say that once again. 43% of human beings believe that we make up what a right is. And we want to know why we're enslaved. 
31% said A, that rights come from creation itself, the creator of the universe, the creative force, and as such, they are unalienable birthrights that cannot be separated from human beings. Less than a third of people, however. The third most popular response was C. Rights are granted to human beings by government, depending upon the country in which a human being is born. You ready for this, folks? 24.14%, almost one in four people, think that rights are created and granted by government to people in the countries in which they reside, in the countries in which the government rules over. Your rights come from your owners. They get to tell you what rights you have and what rights you don't have. One in four people believe this. The last response was D. There is no such thing with about 1.72% of people saying that. The pie chart for this result is on slide number four. Where do human beings' rights come from? Now look at the result here, folks. If we say, let's just look at, com combine the results of, does it come from people? Do rights come from people? Or are they inherent to the universe? Do they come from creation and that we are already have them inherently and they can never be changed or taken away from us? Less than one-third, less than one out of three people believe that rights are inherent to creation. And that they come from the creator of the universe. Over two-thirds of people. Over two-thirds. Almost 70%. 69% of human beings. Think about this. Almost seven out of ten people believe that rights come from people. Whether it's just individuals themselves or by governments. One in four believe rights are made up by government. Seven out of ten believe human beings make up the difference between right and wrong and therefore create rights and get to determine what rights are and what rights are not instead of discovering that based on the objective knowledge of the objective difference between right and wrong which exists in nature. Unbelievable. Profoundly sad, but also profoundly enlightening. Because this is the why, folks. You're getting the why here. This is what's going on in people's minds that's creating the external condition in which you are living. So this is the why. Until this changes, the external world cannot. Until these mental dynamics change, the external world cannot change. Understand that, and then understand what your work is to do. Our work is to change this mental dynamic by bringing these very topics up to people and showing them, somehow showing them, through constant work, through constant effort, that they are wrong about how they currently think. And that is why the world is enslaved. That is why the people of this planet are enslaved. Because of the very way that most people think and this is one of the clearest examples that people believe that rights come from people 
Unbelievable. Let's move on to the next slide. Slide number five. Choose, uh, question number three. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A. Right and wrong are objective. They exist independently from human perception. Right and wrong are not simply concepts made up by human beings. They exist inherently in nature. Right and wrong never change regardless of circumstances. They are existent and inherent to nature. They are what they are. Man can discover what is right. Man can discover what is wrong. And they can't change that. That's A. Okay? B. Right and wrong are concepts created by human beings. Right and wrong are, are dependent upon human perception. Right and wrong can change depending upon the circumstances. And I would say, really in, uh, entailed in this question is, you're insinuating right and wrong can change depending upon human perception changing. If human perception changes, we can change what right and wrong are. We could turn a wrong into a right, a right into a wrong. If our perception changes, it's not something that's independent from perception. It's entirely dependent upon human perception. So that's what we're saying. Are right and wrong dependent upon human perception? So in other words, are they subjective or are they not dependent upon human perception? Are they objective? The responses. The most popular response was B. 67.24%. People believe right and wrong are concepts that are created by human beings and therefore are subjective and can change on a whim once perception changes. If human perception changes, we can change what right and wrong are. Over two-thirds of human beings believe that. Response A only received 32.76%. And this is depicted in the pie chart on slide number six. Are right and wrong objective, and therefore they're absolute, they are what they are, and they can't be changed? Or are right and wrong subjective, and therefore relative? They can change on a whim depending on human perception. 67% of people believe that right and wrong are changeable, and are subjective, and are dependent upon human perception, and therefore relative. Over 67%, 67 67.24%. 32.76 said that they are objective, they are absolute, and they are inherent to nature. Two out of three people are moral relativists. And again, according to the law of freedom, which we talked a lot about in this seminar, which states that Freedom is proportional to morality. Therefore, you have to have the knowledge about what the objective difference between right and wrong are, and then the will to choose the right action over the wrong action, and then you can be free. You cannot do that in a society that embraces moral relativism. Because that states right and wrong are whatever we get to say, whatever we say they are. We get to make it up based on our perception. It's not something that needs to be discovered and then aligned with. We could just choose it on a whim and change it on a whim. And two-thirds of people believe that bullshit. And that's why they're in a cage. That's why they're in a prison. 
because there can be no freedom in a society of people that embrace moral relativism. Cannot happen. Can not happen. Not only won't it ever happen, it's impossible. It cannot be done according to the laws of nature. Can't happen. Yet this is where our society is and we expect to be free. Well, good luck. It's never going to happen as long as that mental dynamic does not change. And I would say not only is it not changing, it's growing worse rapidly. We're at two-thirds of people. Over two-thirds. Over two-thirds and growing. And again, I would suggest these are positively skewed results based on who's asking the questions. Over two-thirds of people are moral relativists, ladies and gentlemen. A society cannot be free as long as that is the mental dynamic operating in that society. It's impossible. Our work needs to be to change that dynamic. Unless we change that dynamic, don't expect freedom to break out anytime soon. Next slide, slide number seven. On a scale of one to ten... This is question four. On a scale of one to ten, with one being the least and ten being the most, how important is the role of morality in your life? So here again, we're going to see more mental schism. We're asking people, how much is moral behavior important in your life? Number one response, ten out of ten. Well, two-thirds of people just said that they're moral relativists. We could get to make up what right and wrong are. And now, all of a sudden, morality is hugely important to them. I'm a moral relativist, but morality is very important to me. It doesn't even make sense. In other words, what they believe is right and wrong is important to them, I guess, is what they're saying. 39, almost 40% of people said 10 out of 10. 39.66%. 32.76% gave it an 8 out of 10. 18.96% gave it 9 out of 10, 5.17% gave it a 5 out of 10, and 3.45% gave it a 7 out of 10. There were no 6s, and there were no 4 and below responses. The average response came out to an 8.8 out of 10. People believe that morality in their life is about an 8.8 of importance. Which, again, I think is bullshit because I don't think people really consider morality as very important at all. Truly. If they're being honest with themselves. Because most people are moral relativists. So, if 6 out of 10 say they're moral relativists, I don't see how this answer could possibly really be above a 5, a 4, or a 5 if I had to make a guesstimate. Which means that it's people could take it or leave it. They really don't care about what's right. Maybe if it affects them, then they're interested. But injustice is taking place in the world, who cares? Doesn't matter. Right and wrong, whether people are choosing them, not that important. That's how people really think. But they'll say, see this is the difference between what people will say and how they really think, which we saw in the first homework assignment. They'll say that they're open-minded, but are they really? No, they're lying. They're lying to themselves most of all. And they're straight-faced lying to another human being. Because they want to believe that about themselves, but they're full of shit. 
Just saying it like it is, folks. Sorry if you don't like the way I said it. But that's what's true. They're just lying to themselves. Um, let's move to slide number eight. Slide number eight is the pie chart about this. How important is morality? There you see the breakdown. I, I call BS on this too. I don't really think these people are honest. You know, the top three numbers comprises almost 90% of the chart. If this were true, humanity would be a free species, not an enslaved one. I would suggest that this is a completely erroneous result based on lying. Next slide, slide number nine. Question number five. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A, karma exists and has an effect upon our lives. We reap what we sow. That which we do to others, we will eventually experience being done to ourselves in some form, regardless of whether or not that experience is brought about by other human beings. B. Karma is nonsense. People can act without any karmic consequences, quote-unquote. The only behavioral consequences we ever experience occur if and when we are caught and punished by other human beings. Amazingly, 84.48 of people say karma exists and is operating in our lives. Only 15.52% say no, there's no such thing as karma. Slide number 10, we go to the pie chart that shows this breakdown. Does karma exist and have an effect upon our lives? Over 84% say yes. Now, I do believe these people actually believe this. I believe this is an accurate response. But what I'm t totally befuddled and confused about is where do people think karmic consequence comes from? What puts it into effect in creation? If rights don't come from the creator of the universe, and most people are saying rights come from man, karma, which they're admitting doesn't come from man, that's right in the question. That karma consequence isn't coming from other human beings. Otherwise, they would have chosen B and say, no, there's no such thing as karma. You can only be punished by other human beings based on what your behavioral choices. I want to know where these people think that karma comes from. These people who are moral relativists, most of them. Where do they imagine this comes from? Or what puts it into effect, this law of karma? So again, I think instinctively, intuitively, people do believe you're not getting away with anything you do here. That's wrong. They know this on an intuitive level, on a soul level. You know, and when, when they're asked, they're, they, they seem to be honest about this answer and say, yeah, I think karma exists. And many of these people are the same people that think there's no such thing as a, a, a difference between right and wrong that exists in creation. And don't think that rights come from the creator of the universe. Again, I want to know, well, where in the hell do you think karma comes from then? So while it's an encouraging result, at least, that they believe it exists, uh, you know, or, or think that they know that it exists, where does it come from? Of course karma exists, it's called natural law, and it's, it comes from the creator of the universe, the same place rights come from. It's the governing dynamic that's ultimately governing our choices of behavior. 
We have a free will to act, but we don't have a free will to act without consequence. And karmic law or moral law or natural law gives us the result of what we've chosen through our behaviors in our lives. Next slide, slide number 11. Conscience, uh, this is question number six. Conscience is a form of A, thought, B, emotion, C, action, or D, knowledge. So what is conscience? Is it thought, emotion, action, or knowledge? So is conscience an expression of consciousness? Meaning is it thought, emotion, or action? The three expressions of consciousness. Or is it something other than that? Is it knowledge? The correct answer to this question is conscience is knowledge. It means common sense, common knowledge, con science, to know together. Science comes from the Latin verb sciere, which means to know or to understand. It is common knowledge. Con means together or with. Common. To, together, to know. To know together. Common knowledge. The exercise of conscience is a form of action. And this is what people don't understand. The very, very, very important non-trivial difference between. People will say, oh, that's just a, a triviality, a, you know, you're nitpicking. No, I'm not. It's very important, this distinction. Conscience and its exercise are not the same thing. Conscience is knowledge which is knowable discoverable. It is able to be understood and held in the human mind. It is able to be received on the part of human beings. It is knowledge which is capable of being known and received. Then when it is acted upon, it is converted into action. And if we choose the right action over the wrong action, based on our knowledge or conscience, the difference between right and wrong, the knowledge of the objective difference between right and wrong is what conscience is. If we choose the right action over the wrong action, that's when we are developing wisdom. So the knowledge itself, conscience itself, is a body of knowledge. Action based upon it is the exercise of conscience or lack thereof. So here's the responses. 51% think it's a form of thought, that it only happens in the mind and it's a mental abstraction. It's a mental process as thought is. And conscience is not just a mental process. It is knowledge. It is more than that. There, it is based upon a truth. It is something that is inherent in creation because right and wrong are inherent in creation and based upon what is true, what is real, that which is reality. 51%, 51.72 think it's thought. 25.86% think it's a form of emotion. 15.52% gave the correct response and said that it was knowledge. And 6.9% believe that it is action. So this is proof people aren't confusing conscience with action. The least amount thought that. The exercise of conscience is action. But most people think it's simply a form of thought, and it is more than that. It is knowledge. So I think we need to do better work to clear that up for people and to get people to understand that in a, in a much more, uh, in, in a way that involves much more clarity. Um, next slide, slide number 12. 
What is the worst thing that can be done to a human being in their lifetime? And I asked this for a specific reason. I knew most people were going to say to be killed or to be murdered, but I wanted to see how many people thought that slavery is even worse than murder, is the worst thing that could happen. Because I think slavery is the worst thing that could happen in a human being in their lifetime. I think I would much rather die than continuously have to live as a slave or even being held as a slave, which again is why I do what I do. I want to exist in all forms of freedom. I'm in mental, spiritual and mental freedom already. I have two out of the three. I'm still being held under duress in, physical, in a physical form of slavery. Whether people acknowledge that or not, or want to believe that, want to acknowledge it, it's true. And so is everyone else on this planet. Two out of three aren't good enough, as I've said many, many, many times. All three need to be and are going to be present. Because this slavery system is coming down one way or another. One way or another. Whether it gets done in consciousness or whether it gets done physically, it's coming down one way or another. And there's nothing anybody can do to stop that. Bet on it. Bet your ass on it. Okay? So, but my point here is I want to see how many people think that slavery, that murder is even worse than slavery. That's what I was looking for here in posing this question. So here's the results on slide 12. Murder, of course, coming in number one with 27.27%. Rape being second with 14.55%. Imprisonment with 9.09%. Betrayal coming in ahead of slavery, or tied with slavery, I should say, with 7.27%, then slavery with an equal 7.27% to just personal betrayal. Being lied to and deceived, I mean, you could really put that together with betrayal. I could have really put this together with betrayal because it's essentially the same thing, but uh, just generally keeping it with, you know, being deceived or lied to 5.5%. If you put that together with betrayal, it could come to over uh, thir- uh, almost 13%, which would put it ahead of slavery. Torture, 5.45%. Isolation, 3.64%. And then with 1.82% each, um, disrespect, homelessness, illness, injury, injustice, limitation, loss, love, suicide, tragedy, and war. Somebody said the worst thing that could happen in life is love. Uh, you got to be kidding me. I mean, that's obviously a psychopath responding. I, I do believe we had at least one psychopath being posed these questions, whether they are a primary or a secondary psychopath. Some of the answers that some people gave in uh, particularly, I think it was week number, um, week number um, four, was totally indicative of a psychopath. Uh, And I I think maybe this might be the same person. Although I can't be sure of that because it was all done anonymously. But uh, somebody who's saying love is the worst thing that can happen to somebody in their lifetime is a seriously screwed up individual. And they need a lot of help. They need a lot of mental help. Okay? Because love is the best thing that can happen to an individual in their lifetime. You know? And love is actually opening up one's consciousness. True love, capital L love, is opening up. It's, it's not even uh, emotional attachment to another human being as many people think that it is. It, true love is opening up one's consciousness to the reception of truth. That's what the, the energy of love really is. When you could do that, then you can truly 
have a dynamic interchange with other fellow human beings and really express love. That's the best thing that could ever happen to a human being. I know it's the best thing that's ever happened to me in my lifetime is to experience that form of consciousness, that energy. So, and, and that's what makes good interpersonal relationships possible at all when we've opened up our mind and our heart in that way. So, how anybody could say love is the worst thing that could happen to somebody in their lifetime, they're really psychopathic. Just an interesting dynamic there at the bottom of that chart. Moving on to slide 13, here's these responses broken down in a pie chart for question number seven. Let's move on to slide number uh, 14 in this section. Question number eight. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A. Taxation is a function of government that is both, both necessary and moral. So in these next few questions, we're talking about different functions of government and are they moral behaviors that people carry out to do these things or are they immoral? A, taxation is a function of government that is both necessary and moral. Many humanitarian things are done with collected taxes. The quality of human life would suffer greatly if taxes were not collected, so taxation should and must be continued. B, taxation is based upon the coercion of a human being's free will. All forms of taxation are actually the theft of the product of someone's labor by those who did not earn or create those resources themselves. People pay taxes involuntarily, meaning under duress, because any attempt not to pay them is met with violence or the threat of violence. Taxation is therefore completely immoral and should not be conducted at all. Okay, here's the responses. 53.45% of respondents say taxation is moral, A. It's moral, it's necessary, it must be continued. 46.55% said no, it's immoral, it's based in violence, and it should not be practiced, it should not be continued at all in any form. Fairly good result. I would like to see it a lot more skewed toward saying no, we, we need to do away with this. It's not moral. So slide number 15 shows the pie chart breakdown. We're still not nearly where we need to be. We're not even at half and half. More people still think taxation is a moral activity, but almost half think it's immoral. So hopefully this is moving toward the direction of more green on this chart, of more people saying that it's immoral. I personally think it is moving more in that direction, but we have a lot more work to do in that regard. Of course, taxation is immoral. That's the correct answer. Uh, It's based in violence. It's slavery. It's a form of slavery. It's a a vehicle for slavery. Moving on, question number, slide number 16, question number 9. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A, drug laws are sensible, necessary, and moral. Certain substances are off-limits for human consumption for a good reason. If we made all drugs legal, people would go crazy taking tons of drugs, and society would fall apart in short order. Therefore, laws prohibiting the possession and usage of illegal drugs should and must stay in effect. B. 
All drug laws are claims that what a person puts into their own body is not their decision to make. This ultimately constitutes a claim that a person's body is not theirs to do as they choose with it, even if they are hurting no one else as a result. Such a claim of ownership upon another person's body constitutes a form of slavery. Therefore, all drug laws are based upon the coercion of free will choice and are ultimately immoral. The responses. 46.55% said drug laws are necessary and moral and must continue. 53.45% said no, that they are a form of slavery, they are coercion of free will, they are a claim of ownership on another person's body, and therefore they are immoral. Moving on to slide number 17, this is the pie chart breakdown. Are drug laws moral or are they immoral? And again, we have the exact opposite dynamic from taxation, with only 46% less than half thinking that drug laws are moral, with over half, 53.45, saying that it should be up to an individual what they put up into their, put into their body because their body belongs to them. And making the claim that they may or may not put something into their body constitutes a form of slavery. This is another good result, I think. It needs to be better, but... I, th I do also think it's moving in the positive direction. I think more and more people are realizing that the war on drugs is a complete, utter farce and failure, and it is immoral, that it is a form of slavery and it needs to be ended. So I th personally see that as a good result, and I think those numbers um, you know, perhaps might be skewed a little toward the positive based on the group, but I think society in general is right about where these numbers are at. Slide number... 18. Question number 10. Choose the set of statements which most, which most closely resembles your own thinking. Drive A. Driver's licenses are necessary and moral. Driving a car is not a right. It is a privilege granted to people by the Department of Motor Vehicles and the Department of Transportation. If people drove cars without driver's licenses, there would be total chaos on the roads. B. Traveling Upon the earth, whether on foot, horseback, boat, car, or any other means, is a human right, and it is not a privilege. Licenses are another way of saying that you need permission from someone before you may do the action that is being licensed. A certain group of people cannot claim that they are in charge of who may or may not take an action which is a right, meaning an action that doesn't harm anybody else. Drivers, and not with the potential to harm anybody else. Okay, of course driving a car might have the potential to harm somebody else, but actually driving it doesn't mean you're harming somebody else. Okay, just like owning a gun is the potential to harm somebody else, but, but the actual ownership doesn't mean that you're harming somebody else. It's what you actually do with it. So uh, driver's licenses, uh, continuing with uh, statement B, uh, Driver's licenses are ultimately a form of coercion and extortion, forcing people to beg permission and pay money to be allowed to exercise a right, and they are therefore immoral. The breakdown, 72.41% of people believe that driver's licenses are necessary and moral, and that government has a right to decree who may drive and who may not drive, and driving is a privilege. They don't believe that actual uh, travel in a car 
Okay, whether you, I'm not talking about driving as a commercial activity, which the legal term driving, I'm talking about traveling in a car, operating a, a car, which is somewhat your possession and driving it. Okay, regardless of how the legal system sees that term. Okay, 72% of people think that driver's licensing is a moral practice, and only 27.59% think that it's immoral. I see this as a very bad result because people uh, fall for licensure all the time and think that it's somehow uh, acceptable. That somebody's got to be in charge of who's able to do this activity or not able to do this, this activity, even if it doesn't harm anybody else. Okay, so are driver's licenses moral or immoral? Moving to slide 19, this is the pie chart breakdown. Uh, just under 28% say immoral and 72.41% uh, saying that it is moral. This is not good. Uh, it is, I don't think this is even going in the right direction. I think it's probably going backwards because people fall for this whole licensure nonsense and um, give their rights away. Uh, because they make it sound so reasonable that they have to license things to keep everybody safe. It's this idea that you'll somehow be kept safe the more things are made illegal, which is what licensing is. You're making it illegal and then you have to beg permission from the state to engage in that activity at all when it is actually a right and not a privilege. You're turning a right into a privilege. So uh, let's move on to the next slide. Um, Slide number 20, which is uh, question number 11. What is the first single word that comes to your mind when you hear the word sovereign? Now, what the word sovereign actually means, as we've gone over many times in the past here on this show, is not a slave. The word sovereign means not a slave. That is the definition. Okay? It comes from the Latin super, which means above okay, or not under, and then regnum, which means rulership or control by another. So if you are not under rulership or control or another, you are not their subject, you are not their slave. That's what sovereign means. So the responses, 20.69% said ruler, that sovereign means ruler, and it does. The classical definition of sovereign is a ruler, because a sovereign means one who is not under the rulership of another. So the ruler isn't under his own rulership. He rules above everybody else. That's the classical definition. That's where the word comes from. Not under rule by another. A king is a ruler because he's not owned by or ruled by anybody else. He rules everybody else. Okay? That's what each individual actually is, though. In reality, they are a ruler of themselves and no one else. That's what a sovereign really is. Not one who rules over others, one who is not ruled by any others. Okay? A, the second response was fifth, at 15.52%, a government. They believe that governments or nations are the sovereigns. Okay? Not the individual. Okay? They believe that it is the government that is sovereign. Go, the, the response was government, was the second response. A king is the sovereign and a government is the sovereign. And this is exactly proves the human condition of the belief in authority. It used to be vested in one person. Now this, con, this erroneous notion of authority is vested in a government. And they're claiming that they're the only sovereigns, when in fact everyone is a sovereign and no one is actually a slave in reality. 
the actual correct answer of free, meaning not a slave, under self-rule, under self-governance, was only about 10%, 10.35%. That was the next popular response, next most popular response. Didn't know what the word meant or had never heard of the word sovereign, never heard the word spoken, never saw it written, doesn't know what it means, equal with the correct answer, 10.35%. People who think it means power, authority, or control over others, which is the exact opposite of what it means, not being ruled by anybody else, 8.62% said that. People who said it simply means independent which I didn't group in with free. It probably could be grouped in with free and then you would bump that up to, you know, uh, a nice percentage. It would put it in at probably the top percentage. Um, But I don't really see independence, no dependency on someone else as necessarily meaning truly free. Free means you're not ruled by anybody else. There can be dependence on something and the person not necessarily be your owner. They could be helping you. You could have interdependence. I don't necessarily see someone uh, relying on somebody else for help as necessarily being owned by them. Now, it can turn into that situation for sure, but dependence is not necessarily slavery. I'm not saying dependence is a good thing to be in. I'm saying you should strive to be completely independent. But again, I don't. I also don't feel any man is an, a total island unto himself. As long as you're living in a society, there's going to need to be societal interaction, and nobody can have every single thing independently that they that they necessarily need on their own. Many people strive to do this, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with trying to do that. But I don't really think that's what needs to happen for people to be able to exist peacefully under natural law. We can have interdependency. And still be free, okay? Uh, somebody else can. Uh, I don't necessarily have to be a farmer, and a farmer doesn't necessarily know how to, how to fix a computer, okay? I could know how to fix a computer and make an interaction with a farmer who grows food, and we can have an exchange, okay? Or we can have a barter, or we could just say, "I'll do this anyway," just to you know, and have a gift economy. I'll give this to you, you give this to me, whatever, giving. Sharing. I know it's an alien concept to the vast majority of human beings out there. I'm just one of those crazy people that believes we can actually share and uh, not every single person needs to know every single thing, how to do every single thing and take up their whole lives with, you know, having to do every aspect of life for themselves. You know, I don't think I need to necessarily learn everything there is to learn about uh, electric circuit boards or plumbing or uh, crocheting or whatever else you want to know. I think that's what makes life interesting is that there's diversity and di- different people know different things. What we all have to come together on is common sense. The difference between right and wrong, conscience. That's the knowledge everybody needs to have as a baseline. Then once we start actually exercising conscience and choosing the right over the wrong, then anything's possible. And we won't. Well, we, will, we will truly be an independent society and a free society. Okay, so I'm going to leave that down there at 8.62% independent. People said bank. That's the first word that comes to their mind when they hear sovereign, probably because they're a member of Sovereign Bank, a popular bank chain in America. Unbelievable. 
almost 7%, 6.9% said that. Uh, rounding out the results of responses to what does sovereign mean, one word uh, that it means when you hear it, at 1.7% each, 1.72% each. Absolute, alone, bullshit, chaos, God, Illuminati, leadership, money, political, savior, and stability. Very interesting response there. Bullshit. I think that's that psychopath that I'm talking about because, in other words, what he's saying is it's bullshit that there can ever be sovereignty. It, will, it can't happen. It will never happen. It's an illusory dream and it's nonsense. And I think that person is probably the same person who said uh, that love is the worst thing that can happen to a human being. This is a psychopath or this is what I would call the perfect golem. The perfect golem. The person who has been completely destroyed in spirit. Their spirit is completely devastated and they're not coming back from that condition. They are the perfect golem. Um, just uh, an interesting response there that I felt I should comment on. Uh, slide number 21 is a uh, question of the pie chart for this question number 11 about uh, what do people think sovereign means and there you see the breakdown with only about 10% of people actually knowing what the word really does mean, that it means free or not a slave. That's what the word sovereign means. A sovereign is a free person. A sovereign is a free human being. A sovereign is someone who is not a slave. That is what the word means. No one can ever change that definition because that is what that word means. It is the actual definition of the word. And only about one in 10 people know that which is sad. Nine out of ten human beings don't know that they are sovereign, that, they, that, that what sovereignty even means, and therefore that they are it, that it is them, that it is everyone, that we are all sovereign. So that brings us to the next question on slide number 22. Uh, question number 12, are you a sovereign? Are you sovereign? And only... Th uh, only 36.7%, a little over one-third, say, yes, I'm sovereign. And I don't even think they really know what it means. Again, I don't think this result can make sense. If only 10% really know what it means, how can only 10% really acknowledge truthfully and know that they're sovereign? So I would say, really, 26% out of this is people who are just answering to answer. And they don't really know that they're sovereign. I would really say it's 10 10.35 like the other result. 63.04% said uh, no, uh, they are not sovereign. And I have to clean up uh, this slide. I noticed a, an error on there with the uh, pie chart not quite matching the uh, responses. I, I'll, I'll clean that up uh, before I put these slides online. So uh, kind of even just disregard that statement because uh, it'll be corrected by the time it goes up. But the pie chart is right underneath the uh, results. Next slide, 23. Uh, very interestingly, slide number 23, for people who, again, follow numerology and know the significance in occultism uh, about the number 23, that this question would turn up on this slide uh, number. Question number 13, are you a moral human being? And yes, that is the way out, isn't it? Um, this result is almost identical to the result of 
Are you an open-minded human being who is willing to hear information that conflicts with your pre-existing belief system? Almost the exact same result. 97.62%, almost 98% said, yes, I'm a moral human being. 2.38%, that one person in this result, uh, again, I don't think it is even uh, number four. This was the homework result where we definitely got a psychopath. Uh, the one person who gave those psychopathic results admitted, no, I'm not a moral human being. This was a psychopath who didn't feel like lying that day because it was anonymous. And again, this is either the psychopath or the perfect golem. And they're one and the same, to be honest. So um, that person, uh, I was expecting 100%. I was very surprised. One person, that one psychopath, uh, gave us an honest answer on this day and said, no, I'm not a moral human being and knows that he's not. So <clears throat> uh, there's the pie chart underneath the results. And I call 100% absolute and complete bullshit on this result. Because that's what it is. Like I said, if you went back into Nazi Germany, circa uh, World War II era, around 30, 1937 and 38, if you were able to travel back in time and ask the people of Nazi Germany the, the same question, are you a moral human being? Do you know the difference between right and wrong truly? For yourself? Do you actively have a conscience and do you choose to exercise your conscience by choosing right action over wrong action at, at all times in your life? Are you a good person? They would have said absolutely yes. And how dare you even insinuate otherwise by daring to ask me that question to my face? That's what those good little members of the Nazi party would have said. And they would have been dead serious about it to you. And I would suggest it's exactly the same situation in America today. Nothing has changed. There is no difference. These are people who believe that they are moral human beings and don't know the first thing about morality. These are people who say that they're moral relativists in the same homework assignment. I'm a moral relativist. Two-thirds of people. Morality is relative. We get to make it up. And yet, I'm moral. Everybody can get to make up what morality is. So according to my own definition of right and wrong, I'm moral. I have absolutely no idea what it really is or not. But I'm going to tell you, yes, I'm a moral human being and I know the difference between right and wrong and I choose right action over wrong action in my life. Yeah, sure you do. These people are full of shit. Just to call it just like it is. That's how it is, folks. They're just full of shit. They're lying. Most of all to themselves, they're lying. <clears throat> That's the conclusion of the homework assignment number three. Let's move on to the last one and we'll wrap up the podcast. This was the biggest one and uh, comprised of um, 17 questions. This is homework uh, uh, for the Natural Law Seminar, Week 4 Homework Results. Uh, moving on to this section, slide number one is the title slide for week four. Slide number two, and this was about ownership. Do you own your own body? Okay. 87.5% of people said, yes, I own my own body. 
And people will say, oh, that's a great result. We had almost 88% said, yes, I own myself. I own my body. But look at the result that said that they didn't. Look at the respondents who said they didn't. 12.5%, 12.5% of people don't think they own their body. That they are actually the owners of their body. I didn't say, do other people think they own you and believe that they're your owners? <clears throat> Excuse me. I said, do you actually own your own body? Are you the owner of your body? And maybe they think, you know, they, they think that there's more implied in this question. Do you eternally own your own body? Can you own it forever and ever and ever and ever for eternity? I'm not talking about eternal ownership. I'm talking about right now in the moment. Do you own the body that you're in? That your consciousness is inhabiting? Do you own this flesh and bone and sinew and blood and organs? <clears throat> Do you own your own body? It's a simple question. Most of the people who were asked this question, the, the, the students told me, most people sat there and thought about it. They couldn't spit out the answer just like that at the snap of a finger. They sat there and thought about it. To this and the next question, which we'll get to. For anybody that can't spit out the answer, do you own your own body? Yes, absolutely, I own my own body. My body is my own property. The end. If you can't spit that out, there's something wrong with you. I'm serious. There is something mentally retarded wrong with you. And that's the problem here. That people don't even know they own themselves. Almost 13% of people say that somebody else owns them. I want to know who they think owns them. Or whether they're saying, oh, well, God owns my body and I can't really own anything. Well, hey, then I'll just take your car or your house or your computer or your food. You can't own anything. No such thing as property. God owns everything. I can't actually own anything while I'm here, while I'm incarnate. No. Especially the body. Well, then who owns it? Well, hey, I'm going to lop off your left arm then. I'm going to use it as a club on somebody else because I feel like it. Because after all, it's not your body. So why can't I own your arm then? I mean, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, nonsensical thinking that has no bearing on common sense and reality. It's so self-evident. Should we even need to be asking a question like this? Should I need to even pose this question to try to find out what people think? This is how totally destroyed the human mind is. And that's why I did it. To try to explain this to people. This is what our work is. I mean, if you have two-thirds of people who believe right and wrong are completely relative and we get to make them up, you have almost 13% of human beings believe they don't own their flesh that their consciousness inhabits. We have a lot of work to do, people. Next slide, slide number three in this uh, fourth section of homework results. Question number two, do you own your own mind? 92%, a little more, said, yeah, I own my own mind. 92.5%, 7.5% of people say, no, I don't own my own mind. Well, who owns it then? I mean, are you admitting that you know that you're under mind control? Most people don't admit that. Most people think that they do own their own mind. And, and again, I don't really agree with this result. The answer is yes, most people don't really own their... No, people really don't own their own mind. To be honest, someone else does own it. But who's going to say this outright? Who does some, If somebody actually believes somebody else owns their mind, who do they believe it is? 
You know, do they actually know about the uh, dark occultists that uh, put forward mind control? And they're saying, yes, I know I'm under mind control, and I know I don't have ownership over my mind. I don't think that's the result. I don't, I don't know what this result really means, to be quite honest with you. I'd like to ask these people, well, who in the hell do you think does own your mind? Just like, who in the hell do you think does own your body? I mean, does God own your body and mind too? There's, no, there, there's a, probably the same people who say there's no free will. It's about the same dynamic, a, a little over 12%, almost 13%. Maybe that's it. Maybe they just think God owns it all. Nobody can own anything. <clears throat> I asked somebody this at the uh, when I was uh, talking to some people outside at the um, Occupy Philly rally, when Occupy was going on. And um, when I said, do you own yourself? He said, I don't own anything, including myself. And he was an African-American gentleman. I mean, imagine that. Just outright admitting, I look of myself as a slave. I don't own anything. I don't own any property. I don't own my body. I don't own my mind. I own nothing. Well, as long as that dynamic stays in effect, you are a slave. By definition. I know, I, Mark Passio, know that I, what I own and what I don't own. And I do own my body and I do own my mind. And they are my property. My property. And they are not owned by somebody else, regardless of any claims that are made. Those claims will always be invalid. They will never be legitimate. And that's everybody should know that. They should know it like they know their own name. Moving on to the next slide. Slide number four in this section, question number three. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A, there is such a thing as authority which is vested in certain human beings who we call government. They received this authority because many people came together and agreed to grant power to them to perform certain actions and make certain decisions for the common good of the people. That's how they got that authority. It's real. It exists. And they got it because other people came together and agreed, you now have this authority and you can make these decisions for the, for the, the, the totality of people. <clears throat> Excuse me. B. There is no such thing as authority which is vested in humanity. Authority is the false claim that some people have the moral right to issue commands while others have the moral obligation to obey those commands and have no right to refuse them. That's what authority is. So how many people said A or B? 60% said A, authority exists, it is real, and the government has it and they received it because the people said that they have it. And B, 40% said there's no such thing as authority vested in humanity. Authority is an illusion. It's a false claim. I'm personally pretty impressed with this result that that many people think that authority is illusory. But still, of course, more than half believe that it is real. I would probably suggest that this is a skewed result toward the positive and that probably it's more close to something like 75, 25, or 70, 30, if that. Okay, so, yeah, maybe 80-20 is probably a little more accurate in the world at large. And that, that makes kind of sense to me to say that it's probably 80-20, because if you look at the dynamics involved in the American Revolution, 
about two out of ten people really supported independence and breaking free from the, quote, authority of a psychopathic king. Um, we might have grown, gotten one more person out of five to, to accept that notion. Maybe two out of five people think that. I don't know. I, I, I tend to look at that. This might be a little bit too on the positive side to be true. Um, I, I might be more inclined to agree that it's about 30%, but... Um, there's the pie chart on slide number five is authority real and legitimate. Uh, 60% still think authority is legitimate with 40% saying no, it is, it is an illusion. It is only a false claim. Moving on to the next slide, slide number six. Uh, this is um, question number four. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A, all human beings have the same rights. No one has any special powers or abilities that give them any more rights than anyone else. Rights are inherent, and as such, new rights cannot be invented and granted by some people to other people. Or B, some human beings have rights that others do not. When certain people enter specific institutions like government, military, and police, they receive rights to do certain things that the public does not have the right to do. So do we all have the same rights? Or are there supermen who have special rights? They get, to, they get granted rights that don't exist for others. Okay? So slide number seven shows the pie chart between this breakdown. Only three out of four people believe we all have the same rights. A full one out of four people on earth, or at least in this study, which I think is pretty representative of the accurate dynamic that's taking place in people's minds, one in four people believe that no, certain people have special rights. I would say that's probably true. I'd say it's actually really more than that. I would say, you know, we're probably, it's probably at about half and half. This is probably skewed toward the positive. But overall, somewhat of an encouraging result that at least we have 75% of people who believe everybody has the same rights uh, and again, you have to wonder about that because people are mostly moral relativists. So what does that mean in their mind? You know, they don't really know the objective difference between a right and a wrong. <clears throat> Next slide, slide number eight. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A, if every single person on earth except one man agreed that it was okay to steal property or possessions from that man, and then they stole from him. Their action would be acceptable, because after all, every person except only one agreed that it was okay. B. If every single person on earth except one man agreed that it was okay to steal from that man, and then they stole from him, their action would be unacceptable. It does not matter how many people agree that something wrong is okay. It still remains morally wrong. This is the only response that we got 100%. 100% of people said, B, it's still morally wrong to steal from somebody, even if everybody agrees to it. And I am calling bullshit on this response. Okay, And I'm calling bullshit because... I believe people say that that's what they think, but in practice, they don't really live that. They think that people have a right to steal. That's called government with taxation. So again, 
people are in total cognitive dissonance. So the pie chart, of course, there's no real need for it. It's 100%, but is on slide number nine. What we were asking is, can majority approval turn wrong into right? 100% say that they think, no, that can't be done. That rights are rights, wrongs are wrongs, and you can't turn a right into a wrong or a wrong into a right. You can't turn a wrong into a right, at least. Okay? I think that's a total bullshit answer. I think they're lying to themselves and to others. And the proof of it is on slide number 10, the mental schism or cognitive dissonance that is shown between these two answers. Okay? Last week, we asked people, is taxation moral or immoral in week number three? And over half of them say, yes, it's moral. And you could say, well, then they don't know that taxation is theft, okay? That they don't know that this is, this is morally wrong and they think that it's morally acceptable. So there's this schism here between people who think that it's moral and uh, uh, fi that's 53% of response in the uh, question from week number three. But here in week four, we're saying, can majority approval, which is what voting taxation into law or agreeing to taxation through government is, that's majority approval. You're saying, well, the government says that we're allowed to do this. They've voted, they voted it. They've made laws on it. And now they're going to send enforcers out to do this immoral activity. Well, that makes it moral. Okay. They passed it into law. So they're, we're, they're allowed to do it. And we have to obey it. That people don't really believe that majority approval cannot turn a wrong into a right. They believe it can. This is proof of it. This is proof that they're in cognitive dissonance, that they say one thing, but they actually believe another. You can't say that you believe that majority approval cannot turn a wrong into a right on one hand, and then on the other hand say you believe taxation is moral. The two things are antithetical to each other in reality. But yet that's what people claim. Next slide, slide number 11. This is question number six. Choose a set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A, if something is legal, that means that it is moral, and therefore it would be okay to do that behavior. If something is illegal, that means that it is immoral, and therefore it would not be okay to do that behavior. When determining whether or not to perform an action, someone should first make sure that it is legal, and if it is not, they should not do it. Or B, just because something is legal does not necessarily mean that it is moral. Likewise, just because something is illegal does not necessarily make it immoral. Whether or not someone should partake in a particular behavior should be judged on the basis of whether or not it causes harm to someone else, not whether it is legal or not. Now again, we got a very, very imbalanced result on this with 95% of the responses answering B, that legality does not necessarily equate to morality and illegality does not necessarily equate to immorality. Now again, you would imagine this is a very, very positive response and uh, slide number 12 shows the pie chart between this breakdown. We're asking, does legal equal moral and illegal equal immoral? 95% said no, that's not necessarily true. Well, we're only 5% said yes. Uh, if it's legal, it's moral, and if it's illegal, it's immoral. Those are equivalents. But do I really believe that? No, I don't, and we're going to prove it. 
And the next question is actually going to prove it, that I believe that this is a bullshit answer on the part of the respondents and that they're lying not only to themselves but to the person asking them that question. This isn't how they really think. That's what they say they think. And they're liars. They're deliberately lying. Or they're, they're believing in their own mind that they think this way when their actions betray what they say they think. And we'll prove this momentarily. <clears throat> Slide number 13, question 7. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A. If someone considered a particular law immoral for the reason that it punished people for doing something that did not cause harm to anyone else. In other words, a victimless, quote, crime. That person would still be under obligation, meaning moral obligation. I probably should have put the word moral in there. They would still be under obligation to obey that law until they could find a way to get it changed, to change that law. Or B, victimless, quote, crimes are no crimes at all. If someone is not being harmed by a particular behavior, then that behavior is a right, and no one would be under any moral obligation to obey a law that prohibited that behavior. The responses, 62.5% of people say, A, that regardless of whether a behavior is harming someone else, if it's prohibited by law, someone would still be under moral obligation to obey that law until they could find a way to change it. 62.5% said that. Whereas only 37% of people say no one is under any moral obligation to obey a law that prohibits a behavior that does not harm anybody else, or in other words, victimless crime laws, like prohibition, for example. Okay? So this is proof, proof that the answer in the previous question, does legal equal moral and illegal equal immoral on the part of the respondents is total bullshit. So slide number 15, showing the results of question seven, do people have a moral obligation to obey laws that would punish them for committing victimless, quote, so-called crimes? And there's the breakdown via the pie chart. So let's look at this in juxtaposed to the earlier question. Slide number 15, the mental schism or the cognitive dissonance that is involved here. The earlier question, 95% of people in the last question just said that legal does not necessarily mean moral and illegal does not necessarily mean immoral. Yet, in this question, they insist that someone would still be under a moral obligation to obey a law that prohibits behavior that doesn't harm anybody. You would still have to obey the authorities. Which this is proof more so of how many people believe in authority. So again, when you had a 60-40 split of people who believe in authority, yeah, it's probably somewhat accurate. At least in the people who are asked, answering this question. They're, they're showing you this is how they really think. The, the, the pie chart on the right is how people really think. The pie chart on the left is a lie. It's what they want to tell people how they really think. But they're full of shit. They're lying to themselves. That's what cognitive dissonance is. Next slide, slide number 16. 
Question number eight, choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A, it is sensible to me that a particular behavior could be legal in one state or country and illegal in another state or country. People in different states or countries get to determine what behaviors are right or wrong and make their own laws according to their preferences. Likewise, a particular behavior such as alcohol manufacturing and consumption during the Prohibition period in the 1920s could change over time from legal to illegal in the same state or country and then become an act that could be punishable under law. Or B. It makes no logical sense to me that a particular behavior could be considered a moral act in one state or country and an immoral act or behavior in another state or country. Or that a behavior could change over time from being considered moral to immoral or vice versa, from immoral to moral. If something is right, it is right everywhere and at all times. If something is wrong, it is wrong everywhere at all times. The fact that human beings believe that they can change a right into a wrong or a wrong into a right with the stroke of a pen is both nonsensical and pompous. The responses, which again I think are pr pretty much lies, 60% um, of people chose B, that that doesn't make sense to them, and 40% chose A. So again, not too much of an uh, imbalance here, a 60-40 split. On slide number 17, you see the pie chart breakdown. What we were really asking here is the moral relativism that is inherent to man's law, right and sensible. And again, I would suggest it's probably really the other way around. Probably over two-thirds of people believe that really it is sensible. But in this question, we're getting 60% saying, no, it's not sensible. And 40% agreeing, yes, I have no problem with moral relativism that is contained within man's law. Very discouraging result. Moving on to slide number 18. And the result of this is really truly unbelievable, uh, which we'll see in a moment. But we asked people in question number nine here on slide number 18, what is the first single word that comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, no rulers, no masters? And I'm going to explain uh, a little bit more in depth on one of the particular responses we got here on this slide. Now, no rulers, no masters. I was expecting overwhelmingly to receive the response freedom. Because when you say no rulers, no masters to most people, they come back with the single word freedom. Okay? Which is true here. That's the result we got. 40% said the word freedom. 22.5%, the next most popular response, came back as anarchy. Now, most people don't know what the word anarchy truly means, which is freedom which is no rulers, no masters, hence freedom, hence no slavery. Okay, so I needed to break this down into how many people really understood the real meaning of anarchy versus how many people were saying anarchy and meaning a different meaning for the word. Okay, so under this... Um, breakdown here on, underneath the number nine, which is how many people responded saying anarchy, comprising 22.5% of the total responses to this question. Uh, the breakdown was six, two, and one, meaning six people in the next question, which was what does anarchy mean? We're going to get to that in a minute, said that it meant chaos. 
two people said that it meant free or freedom. One person gave a response that was nonsensical and had nothing to do with what anarchy really is. It was neither uh, what people think that it is, which is chaos, or what it really is, which is freedom, uh, or the absence of rulers, or the absence of slavery. So um, that's the result, the breakdown, six, two, and one. So we'll keep that in mind in a, in a moment. The people who said no rulers, no masters, the third most popular result, believe it or not, was the word chaos. Think about this, folks. We asked people what the first word, the first single word that comes to their mind when they hear the phrase, no rulers, no masters. Nobody ruling anybody else, nobody claiming to be the master over anybody else. Therefore, nobody being subject to anybody else, nobody being a slave to anyone else. And the people, eight people, forming 20% of the responses to this question, said that the phrase, no rulers, no masters, to them means chaos. That is 100% pure slave think. That is total slave think. No rulers, no masters means chaos to people. Unbelievable and sickening. Rounding out the responses, uh, 2.5%, we had equality, false, finally, insane, nature, nothing, and school. Okay, Some of these responses make no sense, but a couple I really want to quote on. False, you know, that oh, that could never be true. No rulers, no masters. False, okay. Well, or maybe they're saying that's the state today, that's the human condition today. But the the response in this little in this section comprising uh, one person giving this response, I think sometimes we always in a group get that one psychopath. He said, or he or she said, no rulers, no masters means insanity. Think about this. It's not just chaos. It is insanity to think that there can ever be a state where there is no rulers, no masters. You are insane for even suggesting it, for even putting that phrase together. No rulers, no masters. That phrase to him equates with insanity. And you know what that proves to me? Not not that I think or is my opinion. It proves to me definitively, definitely, objectively, that person is insane. That's an insane person. Very insane. That person is completely broken. Broken. Okay? So, you know, maybe if the students to the class are listening, if you want to find that person, if you know who it was who gave that that comment, because I, I could imagine that would probably make an impression on your mind and you'd remember who said that. You could have that talk with them and tell them, no, it is they who are insane. I'm telling them that they are. I can prove that they are. And that is, in fact, their true mental condition. And you could tell them I said it. Okay? Because that person is broken. Meaning both they are completely screwed up and they are a slave, meaning broken, like a horse gets broken, or a mule gets broken, okay? They're broken, and they need help. They need help. The only thing that can help them is the truth, 
and to take it in a big way in their life and to get their burnt brain healed because that's what that person has, a burnt brain. Let me tell you something. You want to prove it? Go and pay to have a SPECT scan done to your brain and they'll show you what your brain looks like. And believe me, you won't like what you find out because your brain is broken insane. No rulers, no masters equates with insane. I mean, you have to be kidding me. The pie chart breakdown for this question is on slide number 19. The first single word that comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, no rulers, no masters. However, what I'm going to do in the next slide on slide 20 is I'm going to present a modified pie chart breakdown because I'm taking the word anarchy here comprising 22.5% on slide 19, this orange pot piece of the pie. Uh, and I'm breaking it down into its constituent, 621. How many people said it meant chaos? How many people said it meant freedom, which was two? And then how many people gave another response to what anarchy meant? So we're only going to have three responses, freedom, chaos, or other responses. Okay? I hope people understand what I've done on this next slide by that explanation. So moving on to slide 20, we have these three breakdowns. Total other responses, 20%. The two biggest responses, what does no rulers, no masters mean? Freedom was the number one response, which should be the number one response. It should really be 100%, 45%. And the second response, the second most popular response to what the phrase no rulers, no masters means is chaos to people in their minds. If that's not one of the most incredibly disturbing social experiment results that you have heard, I don't know what would disturb you. People believe that the absence of rulership and slavery over other people equates to chaos. That there has to be slavery in order for there to be order. This is what people think. 35% of people think that. I mean, that's utter shock, utter dismay, and utter horror. That this is how screwed up mentally people are in this world. And in how, how much help they need to rebuild their brain and their mind and their soul. They're broken individuals. They're broken. Me meaning that they are literally, physically, psychologically, mentally broken down. And that means that they are enslaved. Broken is to, to break an animal means to enslave it to your will. And that's what these people are. The people who say no, the, the condition of no rulers and no masters, meaning no slavery, means chaos. You are a broken person. You are a broken being. It's unbelievable. I mean, I'd like to... I'd like to uh, uh, the people who did this homework assignment, if they can get people to listen to this podcast... The people who gave these responses, I'd love the, for you to try to get them to hear this podcast. The people from the Natural Law Seminar, the first one, the students, take this podcast to people and let them hear this. I want them to know I'm saying this about them. This is what the great work is. It's showing people how broken they are and that they need to heal. You are in need of healing. There is something wrong with you. It's not acceptable for you to remain in this condition. You need help. And again, the way that you need help is to receive truth. And there is a truth. 
No masters, no rulers means freedom. That's the right answer. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not subjective. That's what it means. It means nobody's ruling over anybody else. There's no slavery. That's called, by definition, freedom. This is how, how little understanding people have of the basic meaning of words. It's not my opinion. It's the way it is. It's what is. It's not my opinion. Next slide, slide number, tw uh, slide number 21. What is the first single word that comes to your mind when you hear the word anarchy? This is question 10. Of course, as predicted, with one half of the total responses, chaos is the, the first response. Chaos, disorder, mayhem, lawlessness, breakdown, and rioting. Chaos. You could just group that all under that one word. The absence of rulers or masters, which is what the word anarchy means, to people means chaos. And that's probably about the right response. That's about right where it's at. 50% actually think that that condition means chaos. The people who gave the correct answer, freedom, liberty, sovereignty. Amazingly, some person wrote down sovereignty for the answer to that question. I was very impressed. But people wrote down freedom. But look at the response. 20 responding and saying it means chaos. Only 5 said it meant freedom for a total of 12.5%. Rebellion or uprising, 7.5%. Slavery and control. Think about this, folks. The exact opposite of what it means. The polar opposite. Two people said slavery and control for what anarchy means to them. They said anarchy and they said the first word that comes to their mind is slavery. 5%. 5% said it means government. It's the exact opposite of that. It means absence of rulers, hence no government. Absence of masters, hence no slavery. 5% of responses, government. With 2.5% each, fight injustice. I don't know where people get that. Here's Mr. Psychopath again saying insane, that anarchy means insanity. Okay? Obviously a total totalitarian, authoritarian, and a broken slave. A house slave. Let's just call that person what they are. Okay? That's called a house slave. That's what that person is. It's not my opinion of what they are, and I'm not making an ad hominem attack. It's not an ad hominem attack. I'm calling them a name, but it's the truth about what they are. Somebody who believes that anarchy, meaning the state of the absence of slavery, is insanity, by definition, is someone who, is, who considers so greatly, so definitely, that there must be slavery, that they can only be a house slave. They're the perfect golem. The perfectly possessed and perfectly destroyed individual whose soul has been completely destroyed. That's what that person is. To say insane is the first word that comes to their mind when they hear the word anarchy. So anybody that thinks there shouldn't be slavery in the world is insane, huh? We're gonna find out, aren't we? We're gonna find out in the post-governmental world just how insane the interactions are between people who believe that this form of slavery should continue and those who know that it's illegitimate and are going to make it stop. They're not just going to say they disagree with it. At some point, it's going to be made to end. 
Other responses to this question were nothing rights sons. There's that TV show thinking again. You know, just like Sovereign Bank, that response. Sons of Anarchy. It's the first word they think of because they're a TV head. Violence and then chaos. Uh, I'm sorry, and Yahoo, which is kind of a cool little response there. You know. So, anyway, uh, let's move on to the next slide which is the pie chart breakdown of this question. Slide number 22, uh, question number 10, what's, what do you think of when you hear the word anarchy? 50% saying chaos, 12.5 with, with the correct answer of uh, freedom, government, slavery, and rebellion rounding out the rest of the chart and other responses forming 20%. Next um, slide, slide number 23, choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. And again, very appropriate that this is slide number 23, uh, asking people, is government necessary or not? Okay? Which is obviously what they have to understand in order to get out of the mind control. 23 being really meaning in the occult to get out of mind control. Um, if A, if there was no government, there would be chaos. Human beings could not live peacefully amongst each other without government. They would never be able to find voluntary ways of interacting with each other without government. Government is a necessary institution. B. Government does not prevent chaos from manifesting. Left to themselves, people can use their minds to innovate and find voluntary ways of interacting with each other without government. Government is unnecessary and human beings would get along just fine without it. Let's look at the responses. 62.5% of people believe government must continue. It is a necessary institution and there would be chaos without it. 37.5% said, no, we don't need it. It's not necessary. We human beings could get along and find ways of interacting with each other peacefully without government, which of course I agree with. Uh, slide number 24 shows the pie chart breakdown with obviously over uh, just about two-thirds of people believing that government is necessary and must continue to exist. And they believe it's necessary to prevent chaos, when in fact, that's the dynamic that's keeping chaos in place, because it's based on coercion of free will and ultimately violence and ultimately slavery. So what these people are saying, the response that they're giving, and I believe it is an honest one, these 62.5% of people are saying, Government, violence, and slavery. Violence and slavery must continue in order to prevent chaos. Actually, the exact opposite is true. Violence and slavery are chaos and can never prevent that dynamic. By believing in this, you're continuing violence and slavery through continuing government, because that's what it is. It's violence and slavery. So that's that response. Let's move on to... Question number 12 on slide number 25. True or false, it is right and virtuous for certain people such as soldiers and police officers to follow orders of other people in the performance of their job. So is following orders a virtue? Is what we're really asking. 47.5% say yes, it is virtuous to follow orders in certain institutions. It is virtuous. To just follow orders and act without thinking. If you're given an order, do it, follow it, that's it, that's virtuous. 52.5% said no, 
That's false. It is not virtuous to follow orders unthinkingly. And we're going to see the mental schism that comes up with this in a moment. Slide number 26, question 13. If person A ordered person B to commit a harmful act against person C, so we have a triangle here, we have an order giver, an order follower, and a victim of the order follower. Okay? So, person A orders person B to commit a harmful act against person C. Which person would be more morally culpable for the harm that resulted to person C? Response A is person A would be more morally culpable because because he was the one who gave the order. Response B is person B would be more morally culpable for the resultant harm to person C because he was the one who actually carried out the order and did the action. We had a 70-30 breakdown with 70% saying person B, the order follower, is more morally culpable than the order giver. I think this is an encouraging response. I think we need to get it up to 100%. It's the correct answer that the order follower is always more morally culpable than the order giver because for the reason that he is the one who actually carries out the behavior and therefore is responsible for the resultant harm. They're both responsible but the order follower is always more morally culpable. So question, uh, I'm sorry, slide number 27 shows the breakdown on a pie chart. Who is more morally culpable, the order giver or the order follower? 70% saying the order follower is more morally culpable. Good response, but we need to get that up to 100%. And again, let's look at the mental schism with this and an earlier question. Okay, the cognitive dissonance involved. Who's more morally culpable, an order giver or an order follower? 70% say, well, of course, the order follower is more morally culpable. But then in the same breath, they're saying that order following is a virtue. 47% of people believe order following is a virtue. So how could you have almost half of people believe order following is a virtue? Okay, and then think, well, somebody shouldn't really act on an order and then go and commit harm. Well, if order following is a a virtue, right, then how could you possibly say that the order follower is actually responsible for his own actions? It was virtuous for him to follow the order, right? Well, which is it? Was it virtuous for him to follow the order of person A and then go harm person C? Or wasn't it virtuous? Was what he did wrong and he should have judged the action based on whether it was going to cause harm or not? Total cognitive dissonance inherent in these responses. Look at the next slide, slide 29. Question 14. Choose the set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. Again, this is going to have to do with order following. A. Military officials and police officers are not always personally responsible for certain things which they do. Because if they are following orders as part of a chain of command... Uh, I'm sorry, because they are following orders as part of a chain of command. I have another error in this slide. I've got to take the word if out of there in the question. Uh, again, you won't see that because I'll correct that before I post these slides to the website. Um, therefore, the responsible, uh, therefore, the responsibility for any harm that might be caused by them ultimately rests with their commanding officers. Okay, so we're saying that here the order follower isn't necessarily responsible for their behavior. 
that the order giver is more responsible. B. Every human being is always personally responsible for their own actions. An individual, regardless of their job, cannot be absolved of personal responsibility just because they were following orders of someone else in a chain of command. The person who followed those orders is still personally responsible for any harm that they may have caused by taking those actions. So the personal responsibility always belongs to the individual. 82.5% said B. We are always personally responsible for our own behavior. 17.5% said A. That police and military aren't responsible for their behavior because they're following orders. The Nuremberg defense, in other words. We're just following our orders. We're just doing our job. Doesn't matter who we harm in the process. Had to do it because we were given an order. And we're mindless automaton drone robots that can't make free will decisions about their behavior based on knowledge of right versus wrong and whether someone was harmed by the action or not. No, we just, we are commanded and we do. Like good little robots. And seven, almost 18% agree with that. Which is again, more cognitive dissonance. If people really believe that they were responsible for their own behavior, how could 18% of people say, well, people could just get to act on orders and that's right. This pie chart's broken down in slide number 30. We need to get this to 100%. That means 18%, almost one in five people believe certain people aren't responsible for their own behavior. You can look at this and say, wow, it's a great result. Most of this chart is green. In all honesty, look at it from the half, uh, the glass half empty side. Almost one in five people believe that people aren't responsible for their own behavior even if it results in harm to other people because they're following orders. Slide number 31 shows the mental schism here, the cognitive dissonance. Are individuals responsible for their own actions? Well, 82% of people say yes, they are. And then again, in the question a couple questions ago, 47% believe that order following is a virtue. How can that possibly be? If you believe people need to be responsible for their own behavior... And 80, almost 83% say that's true. The people are responsible for their own behavior. How could for almost half think that order following is virtuous? It makes no sense. It's, it's lying to oneself. Now, what do I think is the true response? I think this half and half response here with 40, almost 48% saying order following is a virtue, that's probably the correct, the, the honest answer. The, the non-honest answer is I think more then 17.5% believe people aren't truly responsible for their own behavior. It would have to be closer aligned to this half number, this 47.5% number in the chart to the right. Because if you believe order following is a virtue, it means it's good, you should do it, and then you can't possibly be responsible for what you did because you were acting on orders, which was a virtue. Next slide, slide number 32. Choose a set of statements which most closely resembles your own thinking. A, human beings have the natural right to defend themselves from violence with physical force. If someone is conducting violence against someone else, the person being victimized possesses the right to stop that person from doing them harm with any amount of necessary force up to and including deadly force. 
B. Human beings do not have the natural right to defend themselves from violence with physical force. If someone is conducting violence against someone else, the person being victimized possesses I'm sorry, does not possess the right to stop that person from doing harm to them with force. That's what we have police for. So do people have a natural inherent right to defend themselves from violence with the physical usage of force? 87.5% said yes. 12.5% said no. Again, somewhat encouraging response, but you still have 12.5% of people thinking that there is no inherent right to defend yourself. These are people who would say if someone comes up and commits violence to you, you have no right to respond with force to put down that act of aggression. All you can do is try to run or to ask them to stop or call a cop. Imagine. Imagine that. But it's encouraging at least that we're close to 90% that we do have that right. The pie chart is shown on uh, image number 33, the breakdown. Do individuals have the right to defend themselves against violence with physical force? And there's the breakdown. Next slide, slide number 34. The last two questions. Uh, question number 16. True or false, personal ownership of firearms for defensive purposes is an inherent and unalienable human right. 75% say yes, that's true. We do have the unalienable, inherent right to defend ourselves and own firearms. 25%, however, said no. So again, partially positive because three out of four people believe and know, I would say, that that's a right, that the right to defend oneself is a right, and therefore the ownership of firearms, which makes that possible, is an unalienable human right. But think about it, folks. One out of four people believe there's no right to own guns. One out of four people believe there's no right to own guns. To defend oneself from violence with the, a physical measure of force that a gun makes possible. 25% of people think that that's not a right and would like to have all guns taken from everybody. And I'll bet you those same people would say it's a right of government, that they have right that the other people don't have. That governments have special rights that their own people don't have. They're made of people. They get special rights granted to them. They're allowed to own weapons. The, these, this asinine quarter of people, one-fourth one of human beings would say, and, and they would say, but the rest of people, they're just, they're just mortals. They don't, they're not allowed to own guns. Only our gods, our masters, can own guns. It's called slave think. And it shows you where, how many people are there. In total slave think. A full one in four people on earth. And again, I would suggest that's probably a very accurate result if we took this to global numbers. It's probably, it's probably more. Because, I mean, you're asking this in America, where guns are a big part of American culture. I mean, you go, you go out to, you know, countries in the Middle East, you go out to countries in, in, in the Far East, you forget about it. This result would be even worse. So globally, that, you know, it's probably closer to half and half, which is very disturbing. The next slide, the final slide for this presentation, uh, slide number 35 on section number four, um, question number 17, true or false, human slavery has been abolished. And this practice does not continue in our society. It's, it's been eradicated. 
90% say that is false, that human slavery is ongoing. Only 10% say, yes, we've completely wiped out human slavery. Now, I would like to clarify that and ask them, which I, we didn't get a chance to, but are you talking about like child kidnapping rings and, you know, drug smuggling rings and things like that? Uh, you know, uh, prostitution rings? Um, or are we talking about humanity as a whole being enslaved, being kept as a slave species? You know, do you think slavery is ongoing in human society in general or just in isolated pockets? Okay, and I would suggest that this result, most people are talking about these isolated pockets of hard slavery, you know, shackled slavery, physical, physically keeping people against their will and making them, you know, perform sex acts or taking them uh, to other countries to, to service, uh, you know, a, a rich elite in sex slavery rings or, um, you know, get them to run drugs and uh, get them to, uh, you know, participate in uh, all kinds of other illicit activity uh, because these uh, psychopathic uh, rich elite class of people, like, you know, want people at their disposal and pay their henchmen to kidnap people, a certain amount of people, and uh, bring them to them through these human trafficking uh, schemes. I would suggest that's what they're really talking about here, not overall human slavery. But a somewhat positive result that at least 90% of people think that, no, we need to do more work as a species and get rid of slavery for good. I wish they would really understand that the entire human species is being held under the conditions of slavery, and that uh, form of slavery is called government. Um, and there's men much mental slavery that is being conducted against the human race. And I would say that um, that is called religion and government. There are two forms of slavery. Um, and until we eradicate both of those world religions, there's, of course, another world religion. Uh, you know, I'm talking about the big religions. You have the universal, uh, I'm sorry, you have the um, uh, geographic or cultural religions like Christianity, Islam, Judaism, etc. You have then the big two religions, the universal religions that are even above cultural religions, okay? Or in other words, the old religions, the old religions, you know, were cultural identified religions such as the world religions that we know of. The two big religions are government and money with, I would say, authority or authority and money, you could say, the belief in authority and the belief in money, I would say the belief in authority is number two, and the belief in money is number one. That's the world religion. That's the most overarching world religion that has most people under that form of mind control more than any other dynamic. Until we get out of all of this mind control through getting out of the belief in all of these religions, such as authority, money, etc., don't expect real freedom. And if any of the re responses here are, 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 all, are all of them taken in the aggregate and understood, if you can really grasp the results that you're seeing here, are any indication, humanity is nowhere near attaining true freedom in the manifested world. As long as the thinking continues the way you've seen it portrayed in the answers to these social experiments, as long as it continues, according to the, the dynamics that we are seeing here in the result of these homework assignments, it is an impossibility for freedom to manifest. 
Only when you change what is going on in the mind can you change the results that are taking place in the external domain that we call the physical world. Until you address those underlying causal factors in mind, don't expect anything to change in the external manifestation. I don't put this, these results here to discourage, frighten, or dissuade anyone from continuing to learn the truth and do the great work of bringing the truth to other people. I do this to show you what your work is and how far we have to go yet. So don't be discouraged. Move through those feelings of discouragement and develop the courage and the will to press on and actually do that work because you might wake somebody up who really activates themselves and they have a lot of drive and they reach a lot of people and then you never know who they wake up and then the process moves out in a fractal dynamic pattern from that point forward and maybe we can actually start reaching real numbers that are indicative of make of making a true quantum shift in the way that our reality is manifesting so that's all for today's presentation, I hope you've enjoyed the results of these homework assignments, and I hope it brings some clarity to people about where people really are at, where they are truly at in their consciousness, and what our work remains to do. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, there are only two mistakes that one can ever make on the path to truth, not starting and not going all the way. We'll see you next time on What on Earth is Happening. Thanks for listening.